Joe Barton. Rodrigo. Welcome to another episode of Excuse Me History. Akumi. Um, we're back with Ottoman Empire, episode two. Part de. Part de. Um, and uh, yeah, the last one uh, kind of ended abruptly because we just got we just hired this new editor uh, who's editing the podcast, and he's not good. Yeah, I mean, it was kind of like uh, one of those outreach programs, like hire uh, an idiot to uh, edit your podcast. Uh, didn't work out well, but uh, so I so I edited it. <laughs> yes, right. I edited it, and I did it like a dad builds a deck. I like got the <laughs> I got the quote for like the guy to edit, and I'm like, I, I could do that myself. <laughs> I got nails. I, I I can go down to the lows. I got the wood. Um, I got I, some tools. <laughs> uh, so so we did it. Uh, so yeah, that's why it was like that. But it's fine. Who cares? It's a fucking podcast. Yeah. Oh, so, uh, well, let's talk so, about the episode. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's why we're doing this. Um, no. So last episode, what were we talking? We were talking about the the part two of the reign of Murad the uh, second. He came back into power, but he's gonna die. And who he, he's going to be succeeded again by his son, Mehmed II. We talked a little bit about I him mean, in the last those, episode. Those details are in the episode. Those details are in the episode. Just Mur- so we got Mur- uh, Mehmed, II. Mehmed II. Yeah, he's he, coming into power. He's like, we're getting to the peak of Ottoman civilization. Yeah, so yeah, we, we talked about the rise of the Ottoman Empire, and now we're talking about the peak. They're getting up to their, their zenith. And then what happens after a peak? You get you get a little bit of a fall, you know. You, you get to the top happened, of the hill. What's happened to Joe and I after high school? <laughs> just been... Oh man, I peaked in high school. <laughs> yeah, that's not good. It's not even a peak. It's just like a slight hill. It's a little plateau. Uh, a little. <laughs> All right. Well, enjoy this episode. Uh, hit us up on excuse me history uh, at gmail dot com. Uh, if you want a t shirt, uh, send us an email. Uh, I think we're selling them now, so it's going to be twenty bucks for a t shirt. But uh, still going to get a website. Like our Facebook group. Uh, ex- yeah. Facebook, uh, excuse me, history, like us. We'll, we'll post all of our content on there so you can keep track of us. Yep. And, uh, yeah, so enjoy this episode, guys. Thanks. All right, um, so Murad II, he dies in 1451, and now we get, for the second time, Mehmed II. Of all the Ottoman rulers, I think I think there are two that really stand out the most, um, and the first one is Mehmed II. What's going to happen is he, he's going to succeed his father. One of the first uh, things he does um, is he's going to... Um, start codifying the law of the Ottoman Empire uh, because before a lot of their law um, had been based in Islamic or Turkish traditions uh, he's going to start putting some of these actually into like official written law uh, and one of the things he does is he makes fratricide uh, legally it's a it's legally sanctioned nice uh, so you can officially kill your brother if you want to become sultan and it works for the most I mean it does work for I mean you can kill your brother. It works in that way. I mean, it works because it, it uh, you get strong, strong sultans. You do at least in the earlier years. I, I think in the kind of the classical age of Ottoman history, you do get these really capable, strong leaders because in order to become the sultan, you have to be willing to kill your brothers or have the strongest army to uh, kill your brothers if you have to. Um, yeah, and so that yeah, it does in a certain way. It is effective. I, I see the logic behind it. And Mehmed, really what Mehmed's... Um, 
Uh, if you're like his son and you're like, uh, <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> Do what now? <laughs> I had to kill my brothers? What are you talking about? It makes sense in the way that the leaders of the Ottoman Empire, I mean, they, or at least with Mehmed, he saw it was his grandfather's struggle. Yeah. Uh, so uh, Mehmed I, he was like, let's act, let's just like make it legal to kill your brother so you don't have to go through that struggle. Yeah, yeah. Um, so in that way, it makes sense. But again, you're still going to have lots of periods of in Ottoman history where you're going to have some sort of struggle for who's going to be uh, the leader. But anyways, uh, but Med's going to really expand the Ottoman Empire. From this point on, there's going to be uh, almost uninterrupted expansion for the next uh, really almost century. Uh, All right, so we're at Mehmed the second. He's yeah. like the what the eighth guy. Which sultan? He's set seventh sultan. Seventh sultan. Yeah. Okay, and he's so now we got Ottoman Empire. Looks like it's got Anatolia in it. It's got Anatolia. It's got a lot of the Balkans in it. Yeah, it's not all of Anatolia. It's pretty much all. It's all of Western Anatolia. Western but, Anatolia. Uh, but parts of Ankara. Cent- yeah, parts of Central and Eastern Anatolia are still under control of various Turkish beyliks. Uh And then there's also another guy, a Turkish confederation that controls parts of the the Crimean and also parts of. Um, like eastern anatolia and modern day iraq and and they're going to be a significant kind of thorn in the side of uh mehmed and his uh successors but basically what mehmed does is he's going to start to expand but also he really uh he strengthens the uh the ottoman navy uh, because really what he wants to do is i mean ultimately the goal is to conquer constantinople and to control both the Black Sea and the Mediterranean, because uh, that will really give them control over the trade in that region. Uh, and from pretty much the moment that he takes power, he's going to start preparing to besiege Constantinople. And they're going to start doing that um, uh, beginning 1452. And uh, it's going to be a, a fairly long siege compared to the the old ottoman sieges much shorter because at this point they they do have cannons they do have artillery they hired like some cannon maker they did yeah they got um i think it was one of the uh, guy in the balkans i forgot which country it was exactly but one of the balkan um cannon makers they get him to make them cannons specifically so they can start these sieges well that guy like first went to constantinople he's like hey you guys want this cannon (laughs) and they were like uh yeah, and then they're like, all right, here's a lot of small money, and he's like, no, 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 and then he goes to the Ottoman Ottoman guys, and they're like, yeah, we'll give you four times what you're asking, big coins, because we made them smaller anyway. <laughs> but they they pay him all this money, and he's like, I got a huge ass cannon, and they make a huge. It's like it's like it's huge. It's a huge cannon. It got the biggest cannons. Got the biggest cannon. Got the best cannons. Absolutely. It's it's amazing. You, you the, the the Byzantines don't know it's coming. Like maybe like in the like the you know they have cannons like in the front it looks just as good but like in the back our cannons are much better much better uh, cannons in this period they they do have specific names uh, d- denoting the size of the cannons we talked a little bit about the Jamestown episode but they have artillery pieces that are you know thousands of, like of pounds uh, and they're capable of firing rounds that are you know hundreds and thousands of pounds because uh, they're trying to knock down city walls. Yeah, and they they really besieged the city in in the spring of eighteen fifty or fourteen fifty three, uh, and then by May twenty ninth of fourteen fifty three, they breached the city walls. They're gonna just uh, their army goes into the city, uh, and the the Janissaries were the ones who kind of had the final push into the city uh, and defeat the defending Byzantines. 
Well, the Janissaries at this point are like, all right, we're, we're going to go in last because we, yeah. want, we want glory yeah, and yeah. we want you guys to dump all that hot oil on the f- first guys. Yeah, yeah, so the Byzantines, they used uh, what was called Greek fire. Greek uh, fire. and uh, That we, sounds painful. Yeah. Um, <laughs> if you read about it, it sounds like not a thing you want to go through. Actually, have a... I'm gonna look up a thing about that. That also sounds very Game of Thrones. It is very Game of Thrones. There was there was an episode of Game. Of, I I did have watched a little bit of Game of Thrones, but there was an episode where they actually see. There's a thing where now it comes like out. Joe Greek fire. They have some, I forget what it's called. Something fire. Uh oh, here it is. Green fire. It was green. I remember it was green. So Osman, he's around 150 years ago. Constantinople. It's been the apple of their eye. Yeah. Finally, after. I mean, they had tried to besiege Constantinople before. I mean, it happened multiple times. Yeah. And finally, after all of that, they finally conquer the city. And f- basically, the Byzantine Empire is destroyed. Uh, the Byzantine Emperor was killed during the fighting. Um, and now the Ottomans basically have unimpeded control over the Balkans, uh, most of the Balkans, uh, Constantinople, and most of Anatolia. Um, and, and they were throwing French fry oil. Over the side of the wall. Yeah, just burning the shit. <laughs> this I know fresh fries done. <laughs> mm, smells good in here. <laughs> oh, my skin is burning. Oh, crispy, very crispy. So now, I mean, what happens then? Uh, well, the Ottomans basically just uh, loot the city. Uh, they do. Well, before that, to how they conquer the city, I like that they had um, they tried to, to they had a little navy. They tried they had to a little navy. The Med tries to build up their navy so they can. Um, attacked by both land and sea uh-huh and then there's like they're trying to get their boats into the the harbor and uh there's a big chain in the way it's called yeah they called it a, it's a boom a boom yeah so it's like a big iron chain that um blocks them from entering the harbor yeah and uh and then they're like hey there's a big there's a big old chain over there and they're like all right we'll take the boats on the land then <laughs> That's do, do what now? <laughs> yeah, you heard me. Like, no, 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 I mean, there's, there's we well, can... these are boats. They they sail on water. <laughs> We've all had that, boss. Yeah. Like, well, it's like uh, what's that movie? This is a Werner Herzog movie. Um, Fitzcarraldo, where they actually they drag a boat over a mountain. <laughs> they did that in the movie. Like they filmed a, that really doing that. Oh, that's great. It's uh, <laughs> it's it's pretty. Uh, there's a documentary they did about the movie, and like at one point. Um, like the people involved because they, they had like the it's filmed in South America and they have like all these like native South Americans like actually dragging a boat over a mountain and Werner Herzog is like <laughs> it, it, it's 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 really worth watching I mean the movie itself is kind of crazy but the documentary is just like wow this guy is just insane <laughs> like he's trying <laughs> to get these people to do something that's almost physically impossible did they do just, it? yeah they did they actually oh. well it, it, so the movie Fitzcarraldo it's based off a real thing and in the real story what they did was they took the boat apart like they they broke it apart and put it in pieces and then carried it over the mountain but that's not good enough for the movie where they literally in, like rigged a pulley system where you could drag the boat over, over the mountain and then into the river on the other side. Check out Fitzcarraldo. That's yeah. some... Uh, and Burden of Dreams, the documentary about the making of Fitzcarraldo. That's some uh, Balder up the hill shit. Oh, yeah. It's uh, it's like, was why it? would you do this? Yeah. <laughs> You're... Um, Who's the guy? Mick Jagger was actually the original lead person in Fitzcarraldo, <laughs> and he had he left the movie uh, because the filming was taking too long. <laughs> um. Anyways, so these divas, these divas. 
But yeah, so th- I mean, this was a, like a, a significant thing because I mean, honestly, um, the the in in Christian history, I think the the first and the second fall of Jerusalem when the the Turks conquered it in whatever the ten hundreds uh, or the thousand around a thousand, and then when Saladin retakes Jerusalem in the Third Crusade. I mean, those are fairly significant events, but I think Constantin- the fall of Constantinople is probably third in that in that line. And I think from from that point on, the Europeans always want to retake Constantinople. Yeah. Um, and because I mean, it is a very important strategic city. Uh, again, it's like sure. in this in this strait uh, that divides the Mediterranean and the Black Sea. Uh, so if you're in the Black Sea region, you know Russia, all the Caucasus states, the Balkans. To get access into the Mediterranean, uh, you you need access to Constantinople. And if your whole thing is like, oh, we're the British Empire or, or whatever, or we're the, the French or, or whoever you are, the, the Austrian, Holy Roman Empire, yeah. if you're like, oh, we're the descendants of the Romans and the descendants of the Alexander the Great and yeah. the descendants or of Julius Caesar, yeah, or, yeah. and uh, whatever, however far you want to go back. And then your kids are like, oh, well, that's cool. What happened to Rome? And they're like, well, then it moved to Constantinople. And then, like, what happened to that? And they're like, oh, well, that the Ottomans have it. And like, oh, so are we... Like, they got that in the back of their head. Right? Yeah, like, no, I mean, f- f- from that point on, the Ottomans are now... I mean, for the, for uh, for a while, I mean, for the last, you know, 100 or so years, they've been fighting against some of the European powers. Uh, but, I mean, this is a serious thing. I mean, Constantinople, at that point, was not the city it had once been. I yeah, mean, it was one, like it was like a million people at one point, yeah. and now it's like 50,000, I think, or, or I saw when, yeah, it, when it was taken. There, there are various estimates, but it's probably less than 50,000. By the time the Ottomans had conquered it, um, it was less than 50,000 yeah. people. Um, and so, But, it's again, it's still like a very historic site, um, and strategically, it's very important. Uh, and so, I think you a, a it's a very... The good marker in Ottoman history is 1453. I think you could really make the argument from that point on, it truly is the Ottoman Empire. They're a connected empire between Europe and Asia, with Constantinople being the center of that. Okay. And Mehmed will spend the rest of his reign, uh, again, trying to expand his power, but also trying to improve his empire. He's going to do a lot of um, architectural pro- projects, a lot of building projects. Um, they're also trying to build up their navy so they can get control over the Black Sea as well as the Mediterranean. Their biggest competitors in that region uh, were the Venetians and the Genoans, uh, two Italian city-states who had very powerful navies. Uh, and they had a lot and of- ham and what ham ham tell us about ham Genoans <laughs> got good ham they got good ham I mean uh, Genoa and Smithfield <laughs> both known for their ham oh Smith uh, Chinese owned Smithfield no that's true yeah uh, a lot of people were upset about that <laughs> anyways well it's the biggest pork producer and it's true all right uh, okay, so so we got we got they got Constantinople, they got it, they got, they got the it, prize, Mohammed the, the apple. second, they got the apple, they got the apple, apple of my, hey, it's a big apple, baby, hey, welcome, uh, hey, this is this is Constantinople, forget about yeah. it, did they, do you know if they have the caliphate now? Do they have they declared themselves? So the, the first person to declare the caliphate was Bayezid the first. Okay, um, he does back in the thirteen seventies or eighties. Um, he had basically he had contacted. So, what what the caliphate is? So the caliphate is basically the family of the of Muhammad. They are the rulers of Islam, and so the first caliphate dates back to the time of Muhammad. And then the various caliphates that come afterwards try to descend their lineage back to Muhammad in some way. Yes. 
And so at this time, there's the the third caliphate, which is based out of Cairo. Yep. Um, and that had gone back to like the 1200s, I think. Um, and Bayezid made basically contacted the caliphate, and he was basically, hey, I want to be declared the Sultanate of Rum. And he's like, I'm trying. He's trying to revive the old Seljuk Empire. Yeah. And so he's like, I'm the Sultanate of Rum now. And then he declares like his own caliphate. But it's really, it's we're still not quite yet to the what really becomes the Ottoman Caliphate because that's going to come in just a little bit. But so Mehmed, he's going to uh, continue to uh, during his reign to just improve the Ottoman Empire. And the one thing about that I think the most interesting thing about him is that even though he is, you know, he is a Muslim, he is Turkish, uh, he really does draw on that European um, past. Uh, particularly Rome and Greece. Yeah. Um, he th- really does think of himself as being the successor of uh, of Alexander the Great or Julius Caesar. And one of the things that he, one of the titles that he declares is the Caesar of Rome. Yeah. Uh, so he is really, he is making his mark. He's like, I am, I am the descendant of Julius Caesar. He wants people to make action figures about him. Yes. Uh, he... Uh, I mean, he yeah, he he thinks that he is uh, a significant power, but he anyway, respect so, me, respect me, respect me. <laughs> I'm Julius Caesar. <laughs> you respect my authority. You guys like who you guys who you guys you guys think are cool Julius? Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm that guy. I'm like the Alexander, Alexander the Great. I'm yeah, that guy too. I'm that guy too. I'm like both of them combined. I got the I got the city. I'm in the city that I got the fucking city. Hell who yeah. Else, who else has the city? Nah, I'm, I got the, the city. apple. The the uh, the apple of my the eye. manzana. <laughs> the gabagool the gabagool so uh, he he's got control of that and actually there were people who thought he was trying to conquer rome like there uh, there was a, a um, come at me bro come on you you're gonna step on you you're yeah. gonna come and get rome come, <laughs> come and get it and that leads us to the Greece wars of <laughs> 1614 <laughs> no. but, he, but he, no he there it's debatable whether or not he really thought he could conquer Rome, but there, for very for a long time after b- both during Mehmed's reign and in the su- his successive reigns, there are a lot of people Europeans who think that their ultimate goal is to conquer Rome, yeah, um, and to unite the the old Roman Empire. But Rome is still is kind of far. It's far. It's it's on the other side of the Mediterranean. <sighs> you got got to build some boats. It. Yeah, I just um, I got this one. I'm just gonna. I'm happy with reinforce the idea that what I have is the best thing. Yeah, that's better. I got the best thing. I don't need Rome. Fuck Rome. All right. So then what happens? So let's. So a couple more guys come out. Well, so Mehmed's reign is pretty important. Eventually, I mean, he really solidifies their um, holdings in the Balkans. He conquests Serbia, uh, Wallachia, or what will become Transylvania. Comes a vampire. That's all those vampires. (laughs) Well, what's his name? Uh, Dracula is part of the Ottoman history. Uh, So he is one of the the guy, his name is uh, Vlad, I think it's Vlad II, uh, or Vlad Dracul, Dracula. Uh, And he is uh, one of the various um, leaders of Transylvania. So this is pitchfork time. It's pitchfork. Time. You got pitchforks. You got stakes. Putting heads on stakes. Like, we gotta go kill that guy. Yeah, I like my head on a stake, medium rare. Ooh. And uh, but anyway, so they they're he's trying to concentrate their power uh, in the Balkans as well as start to expand into expand eastward. Oh, so this guy I talked about. I, I mentioned. I couldn't think of his name before. His name is Uzan Hassan, um, and he was a. Um, 
a leader of an, uh, a Turkish uh, group called the Oguz Turks or the Ak Kolunyolu dynasty. I'm mispronouncing that. Are more also known as the White Sheep Turkomans. Uh, and he fights a battle against them in 1473. Basically, he Uzan Hassan had been like a uh, he, he was a Eastern Anatolian guy who was basically like, I am the true leader of Islam. I'm gonna, I am better than the Sultan. And so he fought a war against the Ottomans. They defeat him in 1473 at the Battle of Otlukbeli. Uh, and that will allow them to start to expand eastward. Um, and they're also gonna fight a war against the Venetians. Uh, Venice had quite a bit of colonies in the Black Sea, um, and so they're going to basically uh, take over all of those little um, settlements that they had there and also fight a naval war against the Venetians. And Mehmed really tries to build up their navy so they can become a dominant force in the Mediterranean. Um, and then eventually Mehmed will die, um, and that is going to happen in the year 1481 um but really i mean mehmed uh he becomes known as the conqueror uh and i think pretty uh, uh i think it's fair to call him that uh did some conquering he did some conquering um <laughs> and really without his con- they don't call me rob the ass farts for nothing <laughs> no, you, you gotta earn your title uh yeah they don't call me joe the lazy piece of shit for nothing <laughs> No, he he really did earn his title and put the Ottoman Empire on the map um, because he does conquer Constantinople and he really does make an effort to rebuild Constantinople into a great city. Um, and like we said, when he conquers it, um, you know the the Ottomans loot the city because under um, Muslim law, at, when they conquer a city that refuses to surrender, they are allowed to basically loot the city. Uh, and kill the inhabitants, uh, but he tries to. He he's like, hey, don't kill too many of them. Don't yeah. destroy too much stuff. The way the way like the way it sounds is like, well, like, I gotta let them loot the city and yeah, rape yeah. and pillage. It's part of the rules. It's, it's it's God says they can do it. Yeah, but they want to maintain as much of Constantinople as possible because they want to rebuild the city. Um, and they'll take a lot of the old structures and build on top of it. Um, so, like the the probably the most famous example is the um, uh, the Hagia Sophia, uh, which is this old Byzantine church, uh-huh. uh, which is then converted into the Hagia Sophia, uh, which is the new Islamic mosque. Uh, which basically they just take the old church, put a dome on top of it. It's kind of like when like you see like a Dunkin' Donuts that used to be like a Pizza Hut, and like yep. so where that red roof come from? Yeah, it's a little odd there. Yeah, but you know, but you gotta get you, we gotta, you gotta get your donuts. Yeah, yeah, and you know you don't want to. You don't want to destroy the building's integrity. Yeah, that's right. Just build on top of the old thing. Beautiful. And yeah, so they keep a lot of the old Byzantine architecture. And and like, and uh, Mehmed, again, he's like this, he's Muslim, but he's very influenced by European culture and art. And he he wants to maintain as much of that Byzantine um, art as possible. And a lot of the the original um, Byzantine parts of the church were still left in there. There's still a few that are really prominent today though some of them were as the years go on they start to cover up some of the old byzantine stuff Uh, but basically they just put a dome on top of it put a bunch of minarets or large towers um surrounding it um and just kind of keep using it as um a church um and so uh, but uh, but, um, 
Ahmed, eventually he dies. Uh, he's going to be succeeded by his son, Bayezid II. Uh, Bayezid... Uh, I, say we, I say we skip a little bit. Yeah, no, no, he's not... Yeah, his rule is not, like, that important. Did a couple more sultans, and then we have Suleiman. But but the, the important thing about Bayezid is that, again, there's another civil war um, that happens during his reign because his uh, sons, again, try to compete over who's going to uh, become the sultan. Uh, and the most significant thing that happens is that um, there he has two main sons, uh, Salim and Ahmed. And um, basically, Ahmed was the favorite to become the sultan. Uh, both um, Bayezid liked him more, and his grand vizier liked him more as well. Um, and what ends up happening is the Janissaries side with uh, the other guy, Salim. Uh, so this is a, really the first example of the Janissary corps uh, deciding who was going to be the sultan. Okay. Uh, so Bayezid dies, and then his grand vizier sends out um, letters both to Ahmed and to Salim. And the letters, they go out at the same time, but um, Salim is further away from Constantinople than um, Ahmed was. So uh, he, and he knew that. So he did that knowing... Check your email. And basically, whoever got to Constantinople first could declare themselves sultan. So it is literally a race to the capital. Try to get on top of that inflatable tube. <laughs> so you get on top of that inflatable tube. <laughs> yeah, you got a little floaty thing. Yeah, so you're trying to get there first, declare yourself sultan, um, and they're going to fight a civil war. Eventually, Salim wins the war, um, and Salim... Um, Again, not he's not a a very uh, not a uh, Salim actually is a very fairly significant guy because he's the person who leads the Mamluk War, um, and the Mamluk War the Mamluks are the uh, basically the um, Muslim dynasty that controlled Egypt and they also controlled um, Jerusalem as well as um, Syria and um, the and Me- Mecca and Medina. So they control the three most important holy sites. Big, in Islam. That's a big deal. It's a big deal. Mecca, Medina, and Jerusalem. Three most important sites. And whoever controls that can call themselves the caliph. And, and remember, we don't go to war. We don't go to war for men. We go to war for God. We go to war for God. So, but you're going to war against Muslims. So you got so a tough up. one. You got to you got to you got to prove that you're a better Muslim. You're like you're the real Muslim. I'm the real Muslim. And you got to call everyone else a fake Muslim. Yeah, and there were fake Muslims, or what they thought of as fake Muslims. Uh, so the the Turks, they're Sunnis. They're Sunni Muslims, which uh-huh. is like the Orthodox. Well, the the heretics were the Shia Muslims. Uh, and really, the difference uh, we're not going to get too much into the difference, but the difference is is largely doctrinal. It's not really based on the way they live, but it's based on who succeeds Muhammad. And the Shias believe that the Caliphate uh, no longer exists because, um, like the uh, the 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 future descendant of Muhammad is almost like a Messiah. He has not yet revealed himself. Yeah. Well, one believes that it's like a, that God chooses the cali- the cali- cali- mm-hmm. caliph. Um, and then the other one is like it's just a descendant. Yeah, and but so we the, have nothing, no jokes or negative no, things no. to say about that. that that's <laughs> a very that's a very acceptable way to live your life. Um, but what happens is so the the major Shia the Shias de- really develop in Persia, and they're oh. going to form the Safavid dynasty, which they'll fight against. Uh, but the Mamluks are another one of these Muslim dynasties, and they're Sunnis. Um, and uh, he leads a war against them in 1516, 1517. Um, they defeat the Mamluks uh, outside of Aleppo. They take Aleppo, and then they're going to take um, uh, Damascus, and then eventually they take Jerusalem. And at first, they weren't going to keep going because it was late in the campaigning season. Winter was coming, um, but they had had such a great success, so they march on Cairo. Yeah, 
great success. They defeat the Mamluks and they capture Cairo um, and the um, uh, the Mamluk Caliph um, basically submits to uh, Selim the uh, the first, um, and then from that point on, the Ottomans technically have control over the caliphate um and this yeah that's a big deal big foot stomp right there taking that test listen like like ottomans controlling the fourth caliphate is a big because like in any kind of you know war or thing happening they can kind of surround all like all the people in that area will answer the call of yeah. the caliph i mean it, it's essentially like on on par with like being the pope like yeah, the Pope can call a crusade and you. But even more, I think even more so because per, per, because perhaps. because the Pope is not. I mean, well, the, back then he was a little bit more of a uh, could you know could raise an army yeah. obviously, but uh, but but there were various European powers that were trying to like control the Pope yes. and whoever, and so that was a thing. But like they have they have a thing called a jihad, which is a holy war that yeah. they can still to this day like people like believe that sure. Um, and the the interesting thing is that the caliphate was not necessary. We don't know when it was declared uh, because even though they capture um, the uh, Mamluk caliphate, um, it's only like I think it's like two hundred years later that they claim that the caliphate was claimed. So this is kind of like after the fact, um, but essentially they do control the most important sites in Islam um, every year. The um, uh, Islamic pil- uh, pilgrims go to Mecca uh, and Medina, and so control over that region um, does give you, yeah, it's huge. It gives you um, both religious and political power over the people in this region. Um, and so then uh, eventually Salim dies, and then he's going to be succeeded uh, by his son, his only son. Uh, he luckily uh, did not have any kind of... Um, Succession crisis after, uh, but his son is Suleiman the first. Yo, Suleiman. Suleiman. Um, and to the Western world, he is known as Suleiman the Magnificent. Magnifique. He's pretty great. Um, and uh, although, in at least in the Ottomans, uh, to the Ottomans, he was known as Suleiman the Lawgiver. Not quite as cool, but you know, he bringing us some laws. <laughs> Um, he was known as the lawgiver because he, like Mehmed, went about codifying um, Ottoman law, um, and he both tried to. That's why I tried to be like, "Hey, you guys should call me Rob Big Dick Man," and everyone was like, "We'll go with Rob, who wears hats sometimes." Yeah, yeah, you, you got really big hats. That's a- <laughs> You can be known for that. <laughs> uh, all right. Rob, who can eat a lot of pizza. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. That is true. I will accept that. Um, but Suleiman... Um, <laughs> um, Suleiman's a big deal. He is a big deal. He, I mean, he... the. He 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 reign, He's the longest reigning sultan um, in Ottoman history. Yeah. Um, he comes into power. Was he conquer? Tell me what he conquers. Uh, okay. What he conquers? So basically, oh, everything. Everything. So. Arabian Peninsula? Does he conquer that? Uh, he does that. Then what about Egypt? He gets Egypt. What about the North Africa? Parts of North Africa, like Tripoli, um, and a few other parts, Morocco, I think. Okay. Also. What about the Balkans? Balkans, he solidifies their control over there. What um, about the Caucasus? Caucasus, got that unlocked. Armenia, Azerbaijan, by the oh, way, for like, people who like, George, like, George, what the fuck is the Caucasus? That's where the white is people, that like, is that white like people What happens live? in Iowa when we all go for... <laughs> Whatever. Um, what about Vienna? 
Vienna, they get pretty close. <laughs> so what happens is he goes to war um, against Hungary. They couldn't beat those sausages. Couldn't beat the sausages. They handled that protein. They, they, they held out. Well, they're they're Muslims. They can't eat pork. That's right. <laughs> so, But what happens is he goes to war against um, some of the Balkan powers and Hungary. Um, and w- uh, one city that had been something they had been unable to conquer before was Belgrade. Um, they're, they're able to uh, besiege Belgrade. They capture that. Um, and then both... The Ottomans and the um, the Austrians, or the Holy Roman Empire, goes to war in Hungary. And basically, not getting into too much in the Holy Roman Empire, but basically, the Holy Roman Empire is this um, political uh, organization um, that is uh, starts to become uh, come into power right around the time that the Ottomans do. Um, it gets its lineage based on who the uh, you know the emperor of Rome. Everyone's trying to. Everyone, everyone wants, wants that Rome. Everyone shit. wants to be Rome. Everyone, everyone wants yeah. to be. Rome. Even Russia wants to be Rome everyone, because during the reign of Suleiman, during the reign of Tsar, the yeah, Tsar, which is Caesar, and yeah, Tsar, and even he, uh, Russia was often referred to as Third Rome because uh, First Rome is Rome, second, uh-huh. second Rome is Constantinople, Third Rome is Moscow. <laughs> <laughs> That's uh, why our band name is Guns and Roses with a Z. It's true. <laughs> but or who's a better what's a better what's a better joke for that? That's why uh that's why we just came out with that's why our new movie is called Godfather Four. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> Not as good as the first. That's they're just trying to make the sequel. That's what yeah. they're doing. They're Every, trying to make they all want to be the sequel. Well it's yeah, it, well like a movie. It's, it's like every, everybody knows an existing franchise. It's easier to build a, yeah. a, to do another one than to build your own thing. <laughs> Next summer. Joe Barton drops shit. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, so but Suleiman he exists in a reign of like great kings and great European rulers, and he is on their same level. Uh-huh. Um, uh, Ivan the Fourth or Ivan the Terrible, he's declared Tsar of Russia. Uh, Charles the Fifth, he's declared Holy Roman Emperor in uh, Austria. Um, there's a lot of guys who are competing. Ivan the Terrible, not a great. Not a great. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's terrible because he's an asshole. He was like, uh, I think he like he beat his son to death or something. You know what? Like, I actually like really like wish like they need clever, more clever names. Like after Suleiman, yeah, they call Ottoman the Empire like the sick man of Europe. Yeah, that's such a the sick man of Europe. Like that's so on the nose. Sure, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I, 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 you got. I mean, if you're a great leader, you got to have like a name. Yeah, all these great guys like like everyone at work calls me Lazy Rob, <laughs> and it's like you could just you come up with you can come up with some better. You can call me like apple cider vinegar. You call me a used car. You call me Italian. Like these are things that don't work. The, well, the British never. I, I I don't know why I'm thinking about the British, but they always they never really had really good nicknames. There was only one great. Which one? Alfred. Alfred. Why? Uh, he's the guy who he defeats the um, uh, the Vikings. Uh, he was like a very early English king. It was before England existed, but he's like the only English the great guy. Oh man! But they always would. They were always like um, it was always the elder and the younger, like William Pitt the elder. Uh huh. That was always their thing. But no, you. I, I think the nicknames are cool. I like the nicknames. You like a good nickname. I'm, I'm a good. I like a nickname. All right. I mean, it's gotta be. It's, it's Joe Bart and the peasant. Fucking oh, well. He's a, I haven't well, heard they, my nickname. Well, they say he's great. Uh, in his mind, he thinks he's great. But no, I, I uh, yeah, I think. Uh, How about like 
Joe Barton or Suleiman the the like the cannon. Like name him the cannon. <laughs> Back then, like how cool would that be? Like the cannon. They call me the cannon because it's That's like pretty cool. You're right? Like, instead of the, you know, just... I don't know. They weren't very creative back then. They're like, he's magnificent. They call me the the, the Greek fire. They call me Greek fire. That's, Greek fire would be cool. Greek fire. Greek fire <laughs> Suleiman. Do you guys hear that new uh, the new album Solomon dropped? I hear it's straight Greek fire. <laughs> <laughs> Do you hear that new oil that the Byzantines dropped? Straight Greek fire. <laughs> That's good. I like that. Yeah. No. So we can get to a joke. We just got to beat, beat some bushes. For yeah, yeah, bit. yeah. It takes a minute. Kind of warm up to it, but no, Suleiman. His his reign is is very significant because they, they do expand during this time. But also, he's going to start really. I don't know. If, I I mean, just trying to get the Ottoman Empire to a, a modern state. Um, just trying to make sure that their laws um, they're codified. Um, so he and also they're going to start to implement both both religious laws as well as secular laws. And so that's going to be a really big, uh, important thing that's happening. Fratricide is still a thing that will be occurring from that point on. Um, but basically just trying to make sure that like their laws make sense, um, that their bureaucracy as they're expanding is going to be the most efficient possible, uh, making sure like justice is a big part of Turkish culture. Imagine being in a time where it's like you don't have, if you, you don't have laws, you don't have any way of like enacting justice or a system to like rely on. And like one day people are taking shit and like, you know, whatever. You, if you have a law, a law system that you can then, you know, take someone to court or uh, accuse someone of breaking the law, then you have like a fair, a, you can start building a more fair society yeah. and, and elevate your position. So yeah. that's a huge deal. And it also like enable, and it also like let other community groups that were not Turkish or not Muslim uh, start to feel part of the empire. And that's very mm. important. And this is like part of their downfall that happens after this is because they kind of move away from this. So it's like they're bringing people together. The Genesary Corps did this a lot too in the beginning where they would bring in these Christian people and like, hey, like you, you can uh, come work for us and we'll give, we'll let you elevate your status in this peasant society or whatever. And this helped a lot. So having laws and having, you know, things that connected the, this, this empire was really great, especially yeah. in something where you have like many different ethnic groups Sure. I mean, they, they control parts of Europe, parts of the Middle East, um, Anatolia, and, and like we're talking about Turkish and Ara- uh, Arabian Muslims have different culture, uh, cri- the, the Christians, D- obviously. Different religions. Different yeah. religions. And um, they do a, a pretty good job of incorporating them all in. Yes. And I think uh, one of the... There's also like Jews in there as Jews, well. There's also... As in the 1490s when the Spanish began the Inquisition, they encouraged Jews, uh, the Sephardic Jews of Spain, to settle in Anatolia. And they're both Sephardic and Ashkenazi, the Jews in Germany. <clears throat> both actually went, uh, settled in Anatolia because they were much more tolerant of those yeah. religious minorities, and partially because a lot of their um, the funding for their state came from them. Uh, the pol- so pretty much everyone pays taxes in some way, both Muslims and non-Muslims. And mo- even at this time, you know, even though these cities are starting to grow, like Bursa, Adirne, Constantinople, they're very large cities. Most of their population is still rural. Yeah, um, they're still very largely a the peasant society that is agrarian agrarian they grow a lot of food they're pastoral farmers um they have her- their herdsmen um but they pay taxes on their their goods um and then the christians they p- pay a poll tax and i think a, a kind of a something a misconception about the ottomans and, and muslims in general is like the the idea of um what happens to the the infidels like they're not trying to wipe them all out because they realize that 
if we do that these lands will just be unoccupied what's the point of that we want people to work the land sure. and then pay us taxes so we can fund our empire yeah and so that's what they're going to do and, and and a lot of these christians will become part of the um the ottoman nobility it was possible to convert to islam and become a statesman um or in the janissary corps like we talked about the beginnings of it and they were recruiting just like slaves or captured christians what they're going to start doing in the 1400s and up until about the 1600s is they're almost exclusively recruiting christians living in the balkans and basically it was like one out of every 40 male children that was born in the Balkans would be um, were required as part of the Janissary Corps. Yep. Um, and so they would recruit these children. They would become uh, go into Turkish families. They would be uh, learn Turkish, be raised uh, as Muslims, um, and raised under a steady diet of the Sultan is the greatest thing in the world. Nice. Um, and he is they, literally they called him father, and then the Sultan called the Janissary. Our, our father, <laughs> daddy, <laughs> uh, and then the Sultan called the the Janissaries his his sons or his children. Hey Jenny. Uh, hey. Hey. I guess can't make it to your baseball game this weekend. Just... But but. Sultan, you said you were gonna come this time. Yeah, I got this guy from Bulgaria. He's coming over, and he's gonna. He brought beers, and just listen. You got you kids have fun. You kids have fun. I'll, I'll be there next time. <laughs> but Dad. But so, but the, uh, but the, yeah. So the Janissary Corps, and and a lot of the Ottoman state is Christian. Like they are, they do have a lot of Christians. There are a lot of Jews. Um, and and even within the cities themselves, they're divided up between the Christian sect of of Constantinople, there's the Muslim section, there's the Jewish section, they all have their own religious <laughs> leaders, um, and they, the, the Christians, the Jews, have to pay more taxes, obviously, but um, essentially they're given mostly the same rights mm-hmm. as each other. But they, they do enslave a lot of Christians, and that's always going to be uh, part of the Ottomans, is enslaving non-Muslims to be uh, to work and be a part of their empire. Um, and in uh, we haven't gotten into it too much, but like there are class differences um, within the Ottoman society. Um, there's basically the ruling class, um, and the ruling class is divided up between um, <clears throat> like the, the, the people people who serve the sultan, um, the the statesmen, uh, the people who are part of his court, and then the military class. And the military class is very predominant. There's, I mean, they have huge armies, um, and they're exempt from taxes. Nice. Um, Hell yeah, it's like when we deploy. Yes. <laughs> you get that nice deployment pay. Um, and, and the soldiers, when they're not fighting, you know, they serve basically as kind of semi-nobility and one of the main differences i think of between the ottomans and the rest of the europeans is you know the rest of europe is feudal you know where they the feudal states where they have um, this is a big a king, foot stopper guys yeah they kingdom and then you got your your feudal lords and they control the the individual tracts of land within the kingdom and then the peasants that live on that land they owe their allegiance to the their feudal lord the, the serfs living on his land they work the land and they pay taxes to him and then when they go to war uh, he calls on the serfs to serve in his army uh, whereas uh, with the Ottomans um, they pretty much did away with the feudal lords so all the landowners um, lost most of their power and title um, but they would still serve as like the main um kind of like the knights of the of the ottoman empire they're the provincial cavalry sure and if you're like a peasant at this time mm-hmm. in what year is this 14 15 
Well, Suleiman's fifteen. He comes in in fifteen twenty. Fifteen twenty, nice. But even a little before, a little after. The roaring fifteen twenties. <laughs> and he's like, it's yeah. a good time. And if you're like a, like a young peasant, and you're like, where sh- where would I want to live? Do I want to live in 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 England and be like, hey, Mister, can I can I work your feudal lands? And it's like, all right, you got you don't have any your own land, and you have to work for me two days a week, and then yeah, you can maybe you know sew some shoes. Yeah. In the meantime, hopefully make a couple pennies, a couple half half hey pennies hey pennies save up some money so that your family can do just exactly the same thing that you did Um, but for people who are living in the in ottoman territory um your your commitments to the feudal lord there was i mean there really weren't feudal lords your allegiance was to the sultan yep and your requirements for working were only a few times a year Yep. national guard no you got your uh one week in a month two weeks a year uh so it was it was probably a better life to be a peasant. But did they have their own land? Was it their their land or was it No, just... it wasn't their land. So it would have been it was it's all owned by the Sultan. I mean, yeah, that so doesn't, Sultan does that doesn't really land. exist yet, privatized and, land. And he and he can dole out land to yeah. various people. In fact, one of the early conflicts that happened is because a lot of the Christian But you could sell all the shit you grow on it. Yeah, so but you pay taxes, um, but then everything else you own and you can sell. Um, but there, de- I mean, there definitely are class differences, and one of the big things was there's the very bizarre. little um, up and down, like mobility between classes, up and, down. and <laughs> no. like very little elevator between, <laughs> <Very> little, <laughs> not a lot of jumping up and down. But no, they they did. Um, they they did have a, I think a little more autonomy than a lot of the serfs that were living in like like especially Russia like in comparison like being a Russian serf sounds a lot worse than yeah. being a peasant living in Anatolia yeah, yeah. Um, but then there were other higher classes and in the cities there was basically the merchant class and then there was the craftsman or the guild class so where would you really want to be at this point well I mean if you're not in the nobility how about a Native American <laughs> that'd be pretty great. A Native American living in Anatolia? Like, what? No, 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 no. <laughs> God, no. Don Luis. Um, what if Don Luis had gone to Constantinople? Yeah, that would have been cool. They would have called him Sultan Luis. Sultan. Yeah, what's the Turkified Luis? I don't know. Um, but yeah, no, where are you going? So, Bay Luis. Uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, Native American before they had like ownership of anything, and it wasn't like, I don't know. Even still, I mean, even in those cultures, still, there's still a stratified culture. Sure, 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 um, there's still levels to it. Um, but no, I mean, definitely, um, definitely the highest. You definitely want to be like a statesman. Like that's you know, oh yeah. Being no, I'm saying if Sultan. you have to be a peasant. Oh, if you time. have to be a peasant. Yeah, it's definitely. I think better than being a European peasant, or at least not worse. Yeah. Like I, I, I think. You just read about it. I mean, there's other continents too, but we don't know anything about those yet. No, no, <laughs> haven't gone, we haven't read that those <laughs> books yet. Haven't gone that far east. Maybe yet. Africa's great right now. You never know. Probably not. It gets though. it gets it gets worse. It's though. pretty hot there. But anyway, so the um, it is hot. the in the cities you have no, the the guilds and they're they're the craftsmen and then they're kind of slightly lower and then slightly higher than that is the. Um, uh, the merchants, <clears throat> and they're the ones who are trading with these various European powers as well as other Eastern powers. And Constantinople, again, it's the center of Europe and, e- and Asia, and you have um, silks and spices and, and all that stuff coming from the East, and you have metals and um, um, weapons coming from the West, and this is like the middle of that, and any culture or civilization that's trying to trade with the either uh, with either the east or the west is going to have to go through this region um and naval control over the mediterranean um and the red sea which is on the other side of egypt and the arabian peninsula is really important in this time and they're uh the 
they during Suleiman's reign and after and before they're constantly at war with the Portuguese because um, the Portuguese had been um, one of the first naval powers and had uh, gotten a lot of control over that region. So they're constantly at war with them, um, trying to gain dominance uh, so you can have shipping power. Uh, but then, you know, any, all of the um, the gold and all of the trade that's coming from the Middle East is coming through Constantinople. Um, and so the merchants are very important during this time period. Uh, and you, they can gain, gain a lot of power. Uh, but definitely non-Christians had a role, or excuse me, Christians had a role in the Ottoman Empire. And a lot of non-Christians converted, or Christians converted into Islam uh, um, and some of them did really become important people. And the Janissaries, like you know, like we talked about, were all Christians that converted into Muslims. Uh, and many of them became very important people. The most important position you could have, besides the Sultan, obviously, was Grand Vizier. Yep. Uh, and the Viziers were basically uh, started out as like the advisors. And originally they were mostly uh, more scholarly. Uh, they were like Muslim yeah. um, priests or like religious scholars that would advise the the Sultan. And then gradually their position expanded they became almost like a, like a combination of like the prime minister as well as the head of the military because uh, oftentimes they would lead military campaigns and some of them were like janissaries prior yeah janiss- some of them were guys who started off as janissaries who came into power um and probably the most famous of them or one of the most significant was um the first um grand vizier under suleiman which was ibrahim pasha um and he was um he had known suleiman from his childhood uh grew up with him and served as he was called the favorite um of suleiman and um he's going to be really important he's the guy who leads uh the campaign that uh that was called the campaign of the two iraqs um which is where they captured baghdad uh and baghdad other than Jerusalem, Medina, Mecca is really important in Islamic history. It was the uh, before it was the original seat of the caliphate. Um, and so capturing Baghdad was really important. Yeah. For, it was like several hundred years, the caliphate was located in Baghdad. Um, and Ibrahim Pasha was responsible for that. He was also responsible for codifying the laws in Egypt. He, um, Basically, Suleiman sent him over to Egypt, to Cairo, to be the governor there, get that up and running. And he was really important. And whoever Grand Vizier is um, has a significant role in Ottoman government and Ottoman power. And usually, not to be confused with Grand Vizier, which is the hat I wear when I go to the beach. It's a really big. It's a really big hat, <laughs> but doesn't cover the top of your head. No, nope. <laughs> it's just <laughs> a lot of shade. But it's the neon top. pink. <laughs> um. I always thought it was weird how many college football coaches wear visors. A lot of them. That's a big thing that they do. That was bother. I think visors are weird. Just wear a hat. Yeah. Why are you showing me the top of your head? I don't need to see that. Um, but anyway, so the Grand Vizier, very important position to have. But it was very, like many things, the Sultan all, all ultimately has the most power. And so he can kill the Grand Vizier at any time. And even a guy like yeah, he can kill anyone at any time. He can kill anyone at any time. But the grand, uh, the uh, Ibrahim Pasha, the, probably the most significant one that served under Suleiman, he was called the favorite. Eventually, he gets executed by Suleiman. Um, another significant thing that thing that Suleiman did was he actually married a person. Yep. Okay. So that yeah, we should talk about that for a minute um, because before. All these sultans, they would take concubines. Con- they they go in like a room. There'd be like a bench. They got like cushions on that bench, and there'd just be a ton of ladies of the night. Okay, you go in there, and it'd be like, all right, which one? You got to impregnate them all because you got to have a lot of sons so that yeah. they could fight. And, and you would only have one son for each concubine. That's right. When you took them out, and actually, it was a good position to be in if you had a son. 
then you get to raise the sun because the, the sultan doesn't have time to go to baseball games. <laughs> <laughs> Just like my father. I got to no, uh, teach him how to read. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> how to be a man. Uh, so you have your, you, yeah, so you got, you had an wow. elevated position in society if you had the son of the guy. So obviously. And, 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 yeah. And so you would only have one for each one and then they would be very much tied to that one child. Yeah. And they would try to promote him as being the one that should succeed as the mm-hmm. sultan. You gave a kill out of milk. You made sure you did his push-ups. Ate, ate his weed. Wheaties, Wheaties, gave him books, champion. a lot of books. Uh, it was crazy though. So, uh, but so he he fell in love, and it's the craziest thing he did. Like people were like, "Oh, it's cool that you're like accepting Christians. It's cool that you're making laws that allow Christians to do shit." Uh, but but falling in love, what are you what are you doing? Why would you do that? And then like, that uh, sounds like a really dumb thing. <laughs> he fell in love with a girl named Roxelana. It was, is a sexy name for sure. Yeah, uh, she was. Uh, she's actually Polish. She's I think Polish. I think that was oh the my god. Thing. She uh, and like. The story uh, is, is that she, he said, like, he saw this girl and he was like, bring this handkerchief to my quarters this evening. Uh, and I've tried that big a line. It does not work. So, <laughs> I mean, you know, being a sultan helps out a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Just go to a bar tonight and be like, bring this handkerchief to my quarters. <laughs> um, it's Why do you have a handkerchief? Um, and then, uh, and then so, like, everyone was like, that's that's pretty that's you're a douche but uh but no people really had a problem with him yeah that, uh, that you're not banging horse you're not banging horse he only he did have a couple of consorts but he when he marries her that's pretty much oh it. and my favorite thing was that he's like they're like she's not hot enough to yeah, do, she, do this they often they say that she's like she was described as not being beautiful but yeah very like i think they described it as graceful dude this is like everyone i grew up with it was like no my, but, like He's gonna, he's gonna like, like that's that's, that's who's dating. Like, it's uh, like he's not hanging out with us for her. Yeah. <laughs> like, she, is she funny or she something? Not even hot. <laughs> she uh, like, she got a good personality. She just because really she got a, just because she got a job and she's an intelligent <laughs> human being. She's not like he like she uh, like intellectually stimulates him or something. How many followers does she have on Instagram? Like like twelve. Like that's she's obviously a witch, and that's what they assume <laughs> that she was like a witch. Yeah. Um, but she, she she is very she has a lot of influence over Suleiman. In fact, uh, so Ibrahim Pasha. What happens is, um, as soon as he returns from Baghdad, uh, he is executed, um, and everybody's like shocked by this because he again he was called the favorite, uh, and eventually they um, his nickname gets changed to the executed. So he was Ibrahim Pasha again. He couldn't executed, and uh, I'm going to look it up what it was. But there was like it, the words favorite and executed are very similar. Um, eh, and they're spelling. Just change one letter. Um, whatever. But he shows. So, but uh, he gets executed, and a lot of people think um, that it was because of her. Like she influenced him. She whispering. She's like the. She's also like the chick from Game of Thrones. Man, hey, you should you should kill this guy. He's like, hey, he's my he's my good friend. He's since like, listen, childhood. Like, you better watch your mouth. Like I got a gymnasium of titties over there. Like I could just go and just be with like thirty five thousand concubines. And she's like, yeah, but like. No one touches you like I touch you. Okay, that's true. And that's I mean, what happened. She must have she, like she must have good head. She, yeah, <laughs> she get that good dome of the rock. You know what I'm talking about? Absolutely. Uh, dome, the dome of the rock is another project that uh, Suleiman did. Uh, so it was the the church <laughs> podcast, Dome of the Rock. <laughs> the church in uh, what do you call it? Uh, Jerusalem. So it was this old damn. He temple. built a church after the head he was getting. Oh yeah. So they gave. He, Nice. Down with the rock, baby. He uh, he does a lot of improvements in Jerusalem and Cairo and Damascus and Aleppo, and he he really tries to build up the cities. Um, 
what's his name? Oh, so uh, uh, his, um, Ibrahim Pasha. He was known uh, as uh, Makbul Ibrahim Pasha, which means the favorite. And then that was changed to Maktul, which means the <laughs> executed. <laughs> Damn, son. You dead. <laughs> it's like when kids in high school would be like, re-go, more like re-gay. And then I had no friends. Uh, <laughs> what was... Uh, I remember one time a kid told me, he's like, Joe... He's like, have you ever heard of the gay factor? And I was like, no. And he's like, well, you exceed the gay factor. <laughs> and I never. And I sat at lunch alone by myself after that. <laughs> Inter- uh, sad window into my high school. But anyways, uh, but she definitely. So she has a lot of. Um, I, was, I would have sat with you, Joe. Oh, thanks for having no, me. No, I no, 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 no. I, I totally would have. I, I would have. You're, no, you're friends with the nerdy guys. Yeah. <laughs> no, I was. That wasn't cool either. Yeah, it's cool. We're all we're all not cool, but she um, <laughs> so she's very influential over Suleiman, um, and as a result, uh, oh, and then another thing is that so she has children before him or before he marries her. She has, yeah. he has a consort, um, and she convinces him to murder um, one of his eldest son, um, and so to ensure that one of her sons will become. Uh, the next sultan. Yeah. So he kills one of his sons. Um, he kill actually he kills uh, two of them, and another one. His favorite son had died of smallpox, um, and then it left one guy to be a successor, which was uh, will eventually become Salim um, the second. Um, but uh, but some other significant things that he did during his reign. I mean, again, the law thing is probably the biggest thing. He's just codifying these laws, uh, making sure that they have justice, both religiously as well as secularly. Um, they're also going to make a lot of changes um, in architecture. Um, really, this is like the uh, the the golden age of Islamic uh, Ottoman Islamic art. Um, they and because of their situ- uh, where they're situated, they're getting materials from all around the world. Uh, Egypt, they're getting cotton from. Um, they have the rug makers in Persia. Um, I mean, they have cotton uh, and or not cotton wool that they have from Anatolia. So they have a lot of um, um, materials. And so uh, we went to the Met the other day, and they had like this rug, uh, this uh, Ottoman rug that was probably made in Egypt, but was used in the courts of the Ottoman Empire. Um, and so um, they they start to they build a lot of mosques and they're really trying to build up the, those main cities of Anatolia, uh, Bursa, um, Edirne, which is on the the European side, and then uh, Constantinople. Um, they start building um, like pretty much every city has a, a grand or a great mosque, and that's like the center of the city. And then outside of that, you're going to have the market. So all the goods that are being shipped in and being shipped out are going to these markets. Um, you're going to build um, hostels and hotels, uh, so people who are traveling to the cities will have places to stay. Um, and so these these cities become these you know bustling hubs. And from the time, you know, Mehmed had conquered Constantinople in 1453, the population's like 30 or 40,000. Um, within, uh, you know, the reign of Suleiman, the population gets back up to about 750,000 people. Yeah. Uh, so it like 10 times the amount of people are living there now. Um, and you need to be able to get um, food into the city. And so they, they try to create a system where you can easily bring goods into the city. Um, their economy is very um, strictly planned. Um, and as opposed to a lot of the other European countries um, that are the economies are based in like the feudal, you know, the feudal lords, the economy in uh, Ottoman Empire is very 
centrally dominated and the sultan and the grand vizier have a lot of power over the economy and what's happening with the goods and they're making money from the taxes they're making money from the um uh the imports the exports they have customs um fees that they're paying and that's how they're funding their empire and they're using that money to continually expand yes uh they're fighting wars still against the hungarians although they had pretty much conquered most of like southern hungary at that point um and by 1526 they besieged vienna and that's a big deal uh because that's the furthest the Ottomans ever get into Europe is Vienna, and they do it multiple times. So the first time was under in 1526 under the reign of Suleiman, um, and they're I mean they're they're just really trying to build up their empire and try to uh, make it as economically. Um, viable as possible um and to really exert their power and again you know we're talking about an age of great empires yep russia austria they're the the holy roman empire and they're all competing over this kind of similar region um and suleiman is really the most of uh, again, his his reign is from 1520 to about 1566, um, and it's really the golden age of the Ottoman Empire. Um, it's not the largest they'll ever be. They'll actually continue to grow even for about 100 years after his reign. Um, but really, I mean, under his reign, they had almost unimpeded success. Um, they got as far as Vienna. They weren't able to capture Vienna, but really his goal wasn't really to capture Vienna. It was basically just to kind of show the Austrians and the, the, the Habsburgs um, that he could could get there if he wanted to, um, and to really assert his dominance over the the Balkans. Um, and they controlled Hungary, mo- or like basically southern and eastern Hungary, pretty much all the Balkans by that point. They controlled the Black Sea region. Um, they had been at war with uh, Venice, and um, they're starting to capture places like Rhodes, um, which was um, a major city, one of the islands um, in the Mediterranean. Uh, they go to war with the Venetians to take uh, Cyprus um, and a few of the other uh, islands around them. And they really just consolidate their power during the reign of Suleiman. Um, and also the Sultan kind of takes on like an, a very new character and it, that had begun under Mehmed. Um, before Mehmed, the Sultan was kind of uh, somebody who was uh, in public sometimes, but Mehmed really tried to adopt like this... Um, uh, this mysterious. He was the JFK uh, of the Sultanate. Well, yeah. I, well, no. JFK was very uh, uh, accessible. That's why he was shot. <laughs> well, that's what I'm saying. He was more. This guy was more accessible. Well, Mehmed. Well, Mehmed's the first guy who's not accessible. So he's he's. Oh, he's not. So accessible. you okay. you would go to see Mehmed, and he would be behind like a shroud. You, oh. would, you wouldn't talk to him. Uh, person to person don't, he would be behind like a curtain don't look at me yeah basically and even like his the people in his court uh very rarely talked to him in person it was only when he came in only in like holy days or in battle where people would see him in person and that starts in, in, only increases under the reign of Suleiman. and as Suleiman ages he becomes much more pious um he's very uh mis- and, and the european people who visit constantinople are always very impressed by him because um he he never rises to speak to them. He like sits uh, on a couch and oh, he's surrounded dick. by his harem. And uh, uh, yeah, he's just like a very, he's got like this mystique to him. Uh, he stopped drinking wine at one point, kind of becomes lame in his old age. But uh, but part of it, <laughs> but it's the Islamic thing, you know, not drinking alcohol. And he yeah, becomes yeah. much more pious as he ages. Um, and, um, and what happens is he dies uh, 1566. 
um, and he was on his way to fight the Holy Roman Empire. Um, basically, he, uh, as the Sultan and as the the Caliph, you know, he is expected to lead Islamic armies and holy war. Um, and the last war that he participated in, he dies on his way to battle, um, <clears throat> and eventually he's taken back to Constantinople and is buried there. Do they continue the battle? Uh, they do, and I, I think they end up winning that war. Um, but basically. So he dies, and he's succeeded by his son, Selim, um, and there was not really a, a controversial succession. Um, but this is what we're going to start to see a, a gradual decline um, in Ottoman power, because uh, really it's during the reign of Suleiman that they get to their, their highest, at least in um, their highest level compared to the European powers. After Suleiman, they're still competitive with the Europeans. And they're still very competitive and dominate the the Eastern powers uh, because the North Africans, um, the people in the Middle East, they don't really have access to uh, muskets and firearms. And one thing about the Ottomans is they had pretty early on adopted the use of firearms. Um, the Janissary Corps um, in the 1400s started using muskets. Um, and compared to most of like the Mamluks and the per- or the Safavid Empire, the Persians, they very rarely had firearms or cannons, which the Ottomans were able to use very effectively against them. But the Europeans are gonna re- are gonna start to adopt firearms and perfect them. And as the 1600s come into uh, come into play, um, the firearm or the musket becomes the predominant weapon on the battlefield uh, in the European theater. And European powers had much more access to that and much more better technology as compared to the Ottomans. Uh, but the Ottoman power still does grow. Um, even in the early 1600, late 15, early 1600s, they're still winning battles and wars against these various coalitions, um, Christian coalitions that will form against them. Basically, for 200 years, they're on and off war with the the, the Holy Roman Empire. They're at war with the Venetians. There's a major battle in the 1570s called the Battle of Lepanto, and it's a war that they'll end up winning. But the Battle of Lepanto, it's one of the largest naval battles in world history. And what happened was it ends up in a Venetian victory over the Ottomans and about 40,000 Ottoman soldiers or sailors die in this battle. Um, And it was effectively the last battle in naval history, large scale battle that involved non-sailing ships. It was uh, oarsmen or uh, galley ships. It's often described as being a land battle fought on ships. Um, And Lepanto was a major blow to the Ottomans. Um, Unlike when they captured Constantinople with a ship battle fought on land. Yeah. (laughs) See, that's their problem. They they got away from that. They don't really get ships. (laughs) (laughs) They they really tried to build up the navy. Mehmed did, and Suleiman did as well. Um, And partially to fight against the Portuguese, but also to fight against the Venetians. Um, But they knew that control over the Mediterranean was really important. Um, And they had this one guy, I'm going to look up, I'm going to look him up in a minute. Um, But they had this one, um, it was a pirate, um, a North African pirate guy that they employed as their admiral. And Hmm. he was um, uh, significant for um, winning a lot of naval battles during the reign of Suleiman and just after it. Oh, his his, uh, Barbarossa. Oh, Hayridin race, uh, known as Barbarossa. And Barbarossa means red beard. It's like um, Operation Barbarossa, where they went to yeah. 
We know, Russia. Uh, Barbarossa is like a, a very common name because any guy who had a red beard in the, in the Middle Ages, they just oh, called him Barbarossa. Barbarossa. That yeah. makes sense. So he he was a uh, <laughs> he uh, who was a uh, significant <laughs> naval commander during that time, um, and he won a lot of victories in the Mediterranean and also against the Portuguese. Uh, it allowed them to establish um, rule in the in the North African states. And so, by the uh, basically, the the Ottoman Empire reaches their peak right around the year sixteen eighty three. So this is about, and then it starts to decline. It starts to decline. This is about a hundred years after Suleiman dies. Hundred years after, and really, the sixteen hundreds begins a, a significant changes in the Ottoman state, partially because of the way they choose their rulers changed. Um, so after you know, the, originally it was basically whoever the strongest son of the sultan is. After the 1600s, it starts this process where all the sons were basically kept in, like, imprisoned. Um, (laughs) I mean, they they had a word for it, but they were basically kept in, like, in the palace, locked up. And then they they talked about how oftentimes later Ottoman rulers had, like, psychological problems because... It was either you were chosen. Help! To be, <laughs> help, help! I'd like to let it be a let out and play baseball. <laughs> Remember when we used to play together? No, you in cages now. <laughs> I promise not to take your throne. No, no, you, I don't trust you, son. But I don't. I don't want to be king. I. I don't even have any. Don't worry. I'm going to keep you locked up, and even if you don't become king, I'll kill you after it. But <laughs> this sucks. <laughs> It did, uh, and a lot of the the later Ottoman rulers often had psychological and, and, problems. And one, and one of, of the reasons uh, they got rid of that is because Mohammed the Third killed sixteen, one six uh, brothers. Yeah. He killed sixteen brothers, and they had little, they had to make little coffins for them because some of them were so small. <laughs> but it's like, um, yeah, like that's that's like that's a busy day, honestly. <laughs> sixteen. <laughs> All right, where are we on now? <laughs> it's like, uh, do we get? Do we get a Jason? <laughs> Are we gonna take an hour for lunch? <laughs> I mean, we kill brothers all day. Do you think you would kill them all the same way, or do you think you would like? Oh, you gotta mix it up. Yeah, you, you gotta, gotta like hang some of them. Maybe some of them you shoot. Some of them you strangle. You gotta, you gotta mix it up. <laughs> and then you just knock on the door. Like, <laughs> all right, I'm just gonna stab you. <laughs> what are you here for? <laughs> You're not here to kill me, are you? Oh, that's exactly what I'm here for. You didn't hear you. <laughs> that's why you don't get bunk beds. All right. But so the, the Ottomans, um, uh, they, they fight a major battle in 1683. Um, and so we talked about the, the first siege of Vienna. Um, and they'll do it again. And this is what's called the, the Great Turkish War. Um, and the significant thing about the Great Turkish War uh, was before where most of the European powers would sometimes unite against the Ottomans. They would form crusades. Most of the time it was failures. Um, this is uh, the first time that the Polish and the um, Austrians unified together. Um, so Poland and Lithuania had been under a unified commonwealth. Um, and then they united with the Holy Roman Empire, which was under the control of the Austrian Habsburgs. And um, what happened, uh, the the Ottomans besieged Vienna in 1683. Um, they got close to capturing the city, and then the, the Polish-Lithuanians intervene and drive the Ottomans away. Um, and, you know, the Battle of Lepanto, a few of the, uh, the they had failed to take roads at one point. Um, there was a few battles here and there that really started to put kind of chinks in the armor of, of the Ottomans. Um, before that point, they were almost thought to be invincible. 
um, by the European powers. And they, 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 I mean, they were very successful. There was a reason why they had this era of invincibility. Um, but after the reign of Suleiman, you get this series of defeats and then culminating with the Battle of Vienna in 1683, a uh, very important event in um, European uh, Ottoman history. And then from that point on, you do get a, a kind of a continuous decline. Um, and at that point, they really controlled pretty much all of North Africa, all of Anatolia, parts of modern-day Iraq, um, the Black Sea region, so like Crimea, um, parts of um, uh, just like all everything around the Black Sea, um, and then as far south as like Cairo, um, that all of like the middle of the. Um, the Arabian, Arabian Peninsula, the major holy sites, uh, Jerusalem, the Holy Land, all of that. Um, and we're talking about, you know, millions of people, like 50 million or so people that are under their control at this point. Um, but in, in, from 1600 onwards, the Ottoman state charts, the Ottoman state starts to change. And we're going to see a continual decline. And part of the reason why they were so successful early on was because they had been able to continually expand. And like empires, you know, empires, if they expand, they're successful. They can pay for their expansion as they grow. Um, they have the money to do internal improvements. Uh, but when they hit that point or that wall where they're no longer able to continuously expand, um, they're going to have a lot of significant economic problems um, that's going to contribute to the decline of their empire. And the European states um, are really starting to come into their own at this point. Um, and as um, the feudal system slowly starts to be replaced with capitalism, I think that is a, another significant blow to the Ottomans because the uh, the capital accumulation of these European empires will really put them at a, a great advantage over the Ottomans. Um, and they continue to modernize their navies and their armies continually get better, whereas the Ottoman navies and, and armies do improve, but not on the level that the major European powers are. And so, what's going to happen beginning in the late 1800s? So, yeah, the so Ottoman Empire learns, is going to learn very quickly that uh, once, you, once you can't conquer anymore, you have to deal with the self. And, yeah, uh, you got to look inwards. You got to look inwards, and there's a lot of problems inwards. Uh, and you can't, uh, you can't just uh, blow it off. You can't just keep calling yourself the Roman Empire all day and saying you're great. Uh, expect to not lose shit. Uh, so what happens is um, 1800s happen. A lot of stuff there. Uh, the French Revolution happens. Damn, son, you just got 1800. <laughs> in, in Europe, they start so, losing shit. They start, yeah, we start to see, the, well, the 1800s, the rise of nationalism. Rise of nationalism, that's a big deal. Uh, especially in other states where they have kind of a national identity and this will be something that the ottomans will not have because they have so many different um groups uh you know there's still like the turks and there's still like people still recognize the differences between even though they've been an, an empire in the same empire for you know four or five hundred years now it's like okay these are turks these are uh, Gre uh greeks these, these are, are kurds, kurds armenians armenians yep 
all that. So they never really uh, reconcile that and never like unify the, the the empire. They don't. They also like they're spending a lot of money on you know these cities and whatever, but they're not really spending money on roads and infrastructure that could maybe uh, increase communication and kind of make a more homogenous uh, society. And, 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 and they don't do that at all. And, and very early on, especially during the reign of Suleiman, oh for sure they dur- do. During the reign of Suleiman, they talk about how the roads were the best that they had been since. Um, the height of the Roman Empire, for sure, and and but a lot of it is in very much in the center of um, the Ottoman Empire. So the area around Constantinople, Aderna, Bursa, all those cities were very developed. Um, they were very advanced cities. Uh, they were international cities, and they did have routes, both sea and land routes, to the other powers. But over time, um, and, and I think the further the the larger the Ottoman Empire becomes, the harder it becomes for them to maintain the infrastructure um, of the kind of the the outliers of their empire. Yep, and so and so basically, what happens? The Ottoman Empire uh, starts to get a little weak as uh, compared to the rest of Europe, uh, and then they start. Uh, and you know, the rest of Europe never really liked the ottomans again we talked about that that just kind of bias that they have being from a different religion or being from a different culture that they just kind of always uh never like them and so the first chance they get where they're not keeping up and they're not the most powerful they call them the sick man of europe that's a big and and they called them the sick man of europe for hundreds of years like basically from the 1600s like (laughs) up until the time it collapses they're just like oh sick man over here and it's just like Ottoman Empire's got the sniffles, like. and then, and so, so basically, how does the Ottoman Empire fall? And they fall by uh, a couple wars, a couple wars, uh, a plague, and just the collapse of their economy. In eighteen seventy-seven, well, so first, actually, in the eighteen hundreds, they lose a couple things. They lose like Greece has a, a revolution, and they become their own thing again. There are some rebellions at the Balkan the re- states. Yeah, England takes back Egypt. It's still like Ottoman protectorate, but England has their hands all over it. Uh, so it's really kind of English, uh, and you'll see in World War One that they just kind of take it. And then in 1877, Russia, who's always, they're always kind of, you know, arguing over land. There's a war, a Russia-Turkan war in 1877. Sultan calls for jihad, uh, as you do as a sultan. That's one of your powers. Uh, <laughs> you got to get everyone... I call jihad. jihad. <laughs> I choose you, jihad. But they lose. They lose that war. Russia gets to the gates of Istanbul. Uh, Congress of Berlin happens in 1878, and they lose two-fifths of their territory, Montenegro, Bulgaria. They lose one-fifth of the population. And so that's a big deal because like the they lose a lot of the, it the Balkans. Of, it was some of their most developed land. So like most, the Balkans were, I mean, most of the rest of their kind of their Middle Eastern, North African territory was much less technologically advanced and economically developed than the Balkans were. Yeah. So that was a significant blow to them. Yeah, they lost. They lost those good states that's right? a bread basket yeah it's not like they lost like wyoming or whatever they just lost, <laughs> they lost uh, new york <laughs> and then uh all right so then something happens called the young turk revolution and uh it's not a the progressive youtube channel uh it's uh, <laughs> these guys it's in the young turk revolution kind of encompasses a lot a lot of revolts that were happening in the late 1800s and early 1900s about just not accepting the the sultanate anymore one of them specifically all right so in the in, in the late 1800s the the sultan is uh, establishes a, a constitutional period so yeah, they have the first they, constitutional they do that in the late 1800s right yep and then they have a yeah they have a first and then a second constitutional period that that's, uh, that's the first time where they um they abolished fratricide they, they oh wow because that was even that it started to co- kind of fall out of favor in the 1700s they stopped the practice of fratricide but it wasn't until that first constitution that it's a, 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 a officially legally abolished yeah 
So they have this, and it's basically just like, you know, every you have all these groups of people that are, they want to have more of a voice. They see, you know, nationalism is happening, and, and people start to recognize themselves as an identity, and they want a, a more of a voice. So the Young Turk Revolution happens, and that's with a bunch of different groups. So it's not just, there's Armenians that come out of this, there's Armenian groups, there's Jewish groups, there's all types of groups. One of them, the biggest one is uh, the Congress of Union and Progress, the Cup Party, probably named after the hats they wear upside down on their head. <laughs> They're saying, okay, we gotta, we gotta have, uh, we gotta have more of a say. We gotta have more of a constitution, and they restore this constitution. So uh, the Sultan Abdul Hamid II at the time, he was like a, he, uh, he had, he had started off as a really progressive dude. He had established the constitution, but then decided that this, uh, it's actually kind of hard when you have to answer to people. So he got rid of that shit. That's a, that's a common thing. Uh, I, I was reading thing about the revolutions of 1848 in Europe, and that was a thing where. These European monarchies, they would often be challenged, and then they would try to create constitutions, and then that would it was just hard for them to adjust to that. Sure, because it's like, how do you go from being absolute ruler, you're chosen, you know, you're the divine ruler, God chose you, yeah. and then all of a sudden you have like a legal constitution you have to answer to, and even no matter how progressive you are as a leader, like you, you're trying to maintain your own authority. And it's definitely, it's definitely easier. You know, like if you're yeah. trying to get shit done. I think that's part of the reason why the Ottoman Empire was successful early on compared to some of the European states was because they did have a very centralized government. Um, it was the the Sultan ultimately was in power. He obviously had, you know, counselors and there was the Grand Vizier and all of that. Um, but it was ultimately authority lie, you know, was in the hands of one person and sure. it was not spread out. And you can have a much, um, you can have like a, a better sense of direction and identity if you have one person in power as, as opposed to um, a constitutional monarchy or some sort of republic or something like that. Yeah. So, um, so these, all these groups come, come, come about, uh, they're having meetings, they're going to Paris, they're doing shit like that. Bulgaria declares their independence, Austria, Hungary, they annex, uh, Bosnia and Herzegovina. That's a place. Herzegovina. Herzegovina. Uh, he got rid of the constitution after he found out it was hard. And the people were very accepting of that. They weren't accepting. Oh, or they, no, they weren't. I mean, at first they, like, I mean, no one did anything because he's the Sultan, right? He's the, he's the, he's the guy who calls jihad. He's like, he's a big deal. He's the caliphate. So you can't just do that so it takes them a while for them for everyone to finally like just be like all right listen we you, you can't we're, we're taking over and so they finally <laughs> do that so the, the the cup which are like these young turks they are turks and they're young they're younger people and they finally uh the bernie bros take power oh god and then uh so they're racist no, okay. um, <laughs> they uh they march on istanbul uh, istanbul and they depose the grand vizier they literally put a gun to his head they killed the secretary of defense uh minister of war or whatever and then uh and that's it and so they they take over and they get a lot of power that way uh this guy uh enver comes to power uh he's gonna be a big deal in 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 the fall of the ottoman empire and then and the first Balkan War happens. That's a big deal. They lose this war in Italy, starts in Libya, basically to divert attention from Libya. The Italians push the Balkan states to revolt against the uh, the Ottomans, right? The Turks, and they do that, and they're successful. Turkey loses a shit ton of land and resources there, a lot of money. Uh, it's like literally two fifths, one fifth of their taxing. And then the second Balkan War happens; they get a little bit of that area in eastern Thrace back, which is like uh, West Bulgaria or West, yeah, Western Bulgaria. And that's what the Ottoman Empire is going into the First World War. Which the First World War was hashtag not worth it. 
<laughs> for probably everyone. If anything can be said about if it. If anything. Uh, did not work out well. But definitely for the Turks. It did not work out well for them. Uh, and they shouldn't have shouldn't done it. I think I think of any of any of the, the groups involved in World War One. Because, I mean, the Germans did definitely lose a lot during World War One, But they get a lot of it back. Uh, yeah. The sequel. How'd they do that? WW2. <laughs> uh, well, they redeveloped their military. But, I mean, if you think about it. I mean, maybe the Austrians a little bit. They lost a little, I mean, Austria-Hungary was broken up into two powers. But, I mean, the French Empire relatively stays intact. I mean, the Russian Empire dilu- dissolves, but it becomes the Soviet Empire or Soviet Union and, and becomes large in its own right. Yeah. Um, but the Turkish, I mean, the, the Ottoman Empire is almost just completely destroyed as a result of World War One. Yes. I mean, it's basically reduced to what is now modern day Turkey. And like they had no right being in the like they shouldn't have done it because it's like they just fought three world or three wars in the last yeah. like 30 years. They and, and they had this revolt. Um like they were not, and, and economically they were declining. They were not in a position to be doing it militarily. And they, and, they just were not on the same level exactly. that the other powers were. And um, I mean, they did okay during World War One. They didn't like completely. I mean, they did win some significant victories yeah. during the war. Um, and I think probably the mo- the biggest one was the Battle of Gallipoli for sure. Um, so the um, where Istanbul is located again, it's it's in between the Black Sea and the Mediterranean. Um, but there are two straits. There's one the Bosphorus Straits, and that's what goes in between that goes through Istanbul. Yep. But then there's the Dardanelles, uh, and there's a, it's uh, a two peninsulas: the the um, Turkish side and then the European side. Um, and then there's on there's a city called uh, the Turkish name is Gelibolu, but the hey. European name is uh, Gallipoli. <laughs> and um, the the British um, try to take the Gallipoli Peninsula. Of what year was it? Probably 1914, 1915. Uh, yeah, 1915, February yeah. 1915 to. Yeah. January 1916. Um, and um, they, yeah, so, and, and they had been, because com- they thought, you know, these guys, they they assumed that they were basically just like one solid, you know, knockout blow from being just completely destroyed. Real quick, so the the reason, like, the, the Turks were in the war is because Germany was, who kind of ha- kept a close relationship with the Turks this whole time, and, and co- including the build-up of the war as they're seeing their enemies and they're making alliances and all the stuff that led to World War One. They want the Turks in it because they're hoping that the jihad's going to work. They're hoping that they can, that yeah. the power of the sultan is going to call for a jihad, and then all the people in Egypt are going to rise up, and they're going to be able to get rid of the the, uh, the Suez Canal, which is going to cut off all these uh, Australian and New Zealanders coming through. Yeah, they can't get from the the Indian Ocean and the Red Sea into the Mediterranean. India, which was uh, under British control at the time, and then there was also a lot of Muslims in India. They wanted to just totally just cause a, a they would hope like their best case scenario was that just a, a full-on jihad revolt against all the British and French powers from you know Morocco all the way through on and all the Muslim state all the Muslim uh, world so that uh, it ends up not happening and, and I think it's interesting because I think maybe at the height of the Ottoman Empire it could have worked I, Man, yeah for sure because I think at that point maybe they were unified under this kind of Islamic identity but because of those 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 couple hundred years of Ottoman decline and the rise of nationalism, you do get these like these eth- almost like ethnic enclaves in within the Ottoman Empire that do have their own identity. And I think you know probably the most 
famous example of that was the you know the Lawrence of Arabia. Um, so the British send in like some people into the Arabian Peninsula to try to raise the various Arab tribes to revolt against the Ottomans. Yes. Um, and so and at the, at the same time that the Germans are hoping that the Ottomans are able to unite all these Muslims together against the allied powers almost the inverse of that happens exactly um and there's like almost an implosion within the empire that's their whole problem the whole time is that the ottomans like haven't been the best overlords yeah especially to the and, and so they are muslim and so it's hard to the way to justify yourself as a christian you know the yeah. british but everyone's like they're they're trying to they have a lot of propaganda. They're trying to be like, hey, listen, the Ottomans are not the real caliph. Um, uh, you guys should follow us. And a lot of and a lot of Arabs, and then this Arab revolt happens in the Arabian Peninsula, and uh, they do kind of go, okay, we'll take the British over mm-hmm. the Ottomans, uh, just because the maybe it's this maybe this guy is maybe these guys are maybe the new boss will be better, right? And and that's something that ha- the Ottomans originally took advantage of because the the lands that we're talking about originally were under Mamluk control, uh, the Mamluk Empire, uh, which was like you know Middle East. Uh, yeah. Egypt and when the Ottomans took control you know the people in those local regions often thought of them as like a better than what the Mamluks had been yes and so but under a couple hundred years of stagnant Ottoman rule now they're looking for the next best thing for sure the, the battle of Gallipoli happens that's uh first they actually have a few minor wins in Yemen and in in Iraq they capture the city of Basra and they, they do pretty well there. And then they're like very overconfident. The Turks are they they've never evaluated seriously in yeah. the last like hundred years. And I think they're they think they're on the ropes at this point. They think they're on the ropes. And in in a way, like economically they are. Like the like their their country is falling apart at this yeah. point. And uh, so they attack Gallipoli. Yeah, they is an amphibious landing um, with naval support, yep. and they just get wiped out. This guy Kirchner, Winston Churchill, like devises his plan, and they're like, "It's just going to be a sea battle at first. Yeah. We'll and, just like bombard them with our navy." Yeah, and the British at that point have like the best navy in the world. Yeah, but it's a shit show. They get like they get too close to land, they get hit with like shit, and then yeah. they uh, they hit a bunch of mines, mm-hmm. and uh, it's just it's a it's terrible. There's a great as I say, there's a great movie about the Battle of Gallipoli. It's called Gallipoli. Uh, it's an Australian <laughs> movie. Um, it's one of the first movies that Mel Gibson was in. Was most of the people, most of the people fighting in Gallipoli were uh, Australian New Zealanders. Yeah. And a big part of like Australian identity comes from the Battle of Gallipoli and the, the almost like the failures of the Australian and New Zealand colonial troops in World War One. They celebrate today like they're. It's kind of like a combination of uh, Memorial and Veterans Day. It's called Anzac Day and it's <laughs> celebrated in Australia and New Zealand. Anzac, which stands for. Australian, New Zealand, something. Ass. Co- coalition. <laughs> Ass <I> coalition. <laughs> um, but no, like there was a huge contingent of the British military uh, fighting in Gallipoli was Australians, um, and they just got wiped out during the fighting there, and it was uh, a huge victory for the Turks. But um, it was huge. They had also, but like, but before that, they had lost a lot of Mesopotamia, which is Iraq, yeah. to the to the British. They also lost. They, they also Enver, this guy who comes to power, and he's basically run the show. He's the Minister of War. He tries to encircle the the russians to the north in the caucasus during the winter and he fails miserably loses i mean hundreds be- like a hundred thousand men something the, like that the best thing you should do is invade russia during oh, winter, man. as we've learned throughout it, all of human history it actually like if you just gave him shoes it might actually work like it like they actually <laughs> did a really decent job and the russian army was like a shit show in its own right uh oh, yeah the russians during world war one were just like completely getting their asses handed yeah down. especially the southern front in yeah. turkey like that's like 
whatever. So, but but they completely failed. Then they tried to take the Suez Canal, which they actually they sent one of the uh, um, Samal, I think, went to uh, Syria, raised up an army, tried to take the Sinai Peninsula, tried to invig- in, in, invigorate the the Muslims there, trying to get them to kind of revolt, and uh, they. They failed uh, there as well. They didn't lose as many people as like the northern campaign against Russia. They lost like 100,000 uh, men or something like that. It's crazy. That's the other thing about Ottoman campaigns is that when they lose, they lose big. Oh, it's yeah. always like tens of or hundreds of thousands of people are dying. Sure. It's like they, they win big or they lose big. Well, if you look at like Verdun in France, that yeah, was like no. 700,000 each side. Yeah, no. Like that's crazy. That's like, true. But then they're ha- they they're on the heels of these losses in Russia and in Egypt and in uh, Mesopotamia, uh, Iraq. They then they have this big win at Gallipoli, and like even when they first beat the ships back, their police have to go around to like neighborhoods and like knock on doors and like tell people like, "Hey, we won. <laughs> you need to celebrate." <laughs> Um, that's that's when you know you're winning. That's when you, <laughs> when you have it. to tell people that you're winning. And that's not their only win. They have another win. Uh, so uh, at, right after Gallipoli, uh, this is this. I mean, you can go into this for a while about how you can do a whole podcast on Gallipoli, honestly. But like, it is a devastating blow to the British, yeah. right? Because this is like their first full on loss. And and on in the and, war, and they thought like, okay, we're struggling on the Western Front. Yes. Maybe we can just be these backwards Turks, and they fail. Pretty spectacularly. <laughs> yes, and and like they might have been able to do it if uh, it was like because like again like the Turkish Empire at this point was such a shit show like uh, you know like they their their population is falling apart they're out of money um, they're out of food they have they're There's they're so rampant many, in disease internal revolts internal revolts um, and. Uh, uh, Pasha or Enver gives a like he lets a, a, a German leader run the siege in Gallipoli, really. uh, which probably saved them. So that happens. Gallipoli happens, and then they're like, "All right, so we lost." So the, the English Empire is like lost. They're super embarrassed, and then they're like, "All right, so now we need to double down in uh, our gains in uh, Mesopotamia." So they go from Basra to this place called Kut or yeah, Kut, mm-hmm. uh, K-U-T. This guy Townsend. Um, and he's a he's a general or admiral there, and he gets his ass handed to him. Like they get sieged, and that they have a second big loss of the war, and that's a huge blow to the to the. And that actually gets like other like the Balkan states, like Bulgaria, will actually rot, like will actually join the uh, Central Powers because <laughs> of this. And then we got to touch on the Armenian genocide though, real quick. All right, so in the World War One, the Ottoman Empire, the Great War, in the Great War, they lose. They lose uh, early battles, then they win these huge ones at Gallipoli and Kut. Kut? I don't know. I don't want to pronounce it. All, obviously, any pronunciation made today, uh, we're sorry. And and then they have... Um... <laughs> Our producer, Maya, is walking around right now. Hey, Maya. Do, uh, can you get us a couple of waters? <laughs> <laughs> Um, All right, so they win this. So they have some victories. wins. They have some loses, losses. The, the British kind of back away from the Ottoman Empire, and that's what everyone learns in World War One is that you def- odds go to the defender. If they had stayed away, they would have done so much better because, like I said, the Ottoman society was just falling apart. Uh, and one thing that was a result of this was the Armenian genocide. What happens there is essentially there's been years of animosity being built up between the Armenians and the yeah. Ottomans. And the, the, the Armenians have been this like 
kind of ethnic enclave yep. in the Ottoman Empire for hundreds of years. I yes. mean, they're one of the many Christian groups of people that have been living um, within the empire with like, again, you know, like the other Christ- I mean, Christians were a huge part of the Ottoman Empire. Yep. They're paying taxes and they live with, you know, a fair amount of autonomy. They're able to, you know, go to their own religious services. They have certain rights, maybe not as many rights as Muslims do in the Ottoman Empire, but definitely over the years, especially in the later years of the Ottoman Empire, there starts to be conflicts between the two. Unlike the Kurds, the Kurdish people, they don't have a land that's theirs. They don't have a geographical area that they can claim. They're mixed in Mm -hmm. the entire Ottoman society, and so that proves very difficult. So a bunch of things happen, and and over the last fifty years before the the Great War, there is a lot of there's a couple like I would describe them as mini genocides, basically using the Armenians as a scapegoat for something that happens. The counter revolution, they get in on the Yunturk thing. We're like, hey, like we we're our own people too. We're not gonna whatever. They you, they label them as terrorists, and they bomb the shit, or they they destroy this one town and, and kill thirty thousand Armenians. Uh, and I thought that was the Armenian genocide when I was reading about <laughs> it. I was like, wow, that's horrible. And it's like, no, that's not like that was not even close. Um, that so, was the prequel. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So there's all this like so this is years of animosity build up, um, and then the war happens, and then in the Basically, in the when when Enver goes to fight the Russians, where they lose badly, uh, a third of that army is made up of Armenians, and they're basically being described as like weak fighters by the the Ottomans, or they're not reliable, they're treacherous, they're giving the Russians their uh, information, intelligence, and all that stuff. And uh, this is probably half true. Like it's probably embellished and it's probably you know used. It's just like uh, it's just like you know we hear people today describe uh, you know certain ident- groups of people as like the enemy in yeah. their own in our own country. Yeah, that happens all. The- I mean, it, I think this is a, a common theme in, in empires. Sure, like when an empire is in decline, you need a scapegoat, yes. and one one or multiple minorities within that scapegoat will become. One of my one minority within that group will become the scapegoat, and in this case, it's the Armenians. Yes. Now, were they giving intelligence to the Russians? Were they a bad flank on the you know whatever? Yeah. Uh, probably because they hate you guys because you've yeah. been killing them and been. Uh, they're secondary citizens. The secondary citizens. They've been in, yeah, so they're not going to fight uh, that well. So this happens, and then this kind of just builds up, and and basically, as the Ottoman Empire is literally collapsing, and they have um, they're dealing with a plague that's like killing hundreds of thousands of people. Uh, they're like, they, they put all that on the Armenians essentially. And basically saying that they're the, they're the reason and that these, these people, whatever. So this is crazy though. They don't do. So they, the first thing they do is kick Greeks out mm-hmm. of the Ottoman empire and they'll, they'll send them to Greece, mm-hmm. um, which is more okay because, that's literally what they did in in the the Greek state. They had there was a place for them to go, yeah. right? So that happened, and then the Armenians. The same thing kind of happened, except there was no there's no Armenia at this point. Sure. Um, they're just like you're going to go to S- Syria, and uh, they put out like flyers and were like, uh, "We're moving you guys here. Leave all your stuff with the government. You'll get it back when you come back." That's but, literally what it's. One one thing to say is that um, force removal was always uh, something. There's always always a part of Ottoman policy. They're always very willing to move people within the empire, especially when they conquered a new place. They would move 
Muslims into that place. Yes. Um, so like force relocation is a thing that they use within their empire. And now it's interesting that kind of in the, the decline of their empire, they're using it, but almost as a way to like maintain the power that they have. Yeah. And I mean, like if that had, if, if that was like, if they had done the same thing with the Armenians as the Greeks, you know, they would have had a, like a, a leg to stand on in some kind of like, justification during a wartime scenario Mm -hmm. but it was not that at all obviously uh so there was like there's like literally a this open mandate of like we're moving the 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 armenians but then there was like a private secret mandate where it's like no we're planning on killing all everyone (laughs) we were trying to like and like they would just take every like boy uh over 12 they would just take a side and, and shoot and everyone was very like they have accounts of like people like the 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 people who are doing this march mm-hmm. to see some desert in Syria in in this inhabitable desert. They're like, yeah, we were told to kill you or make sure you die along the way. And like, there's yeah. a lot. There's a a lot of accounts like that, and they weren't allowed to write it down. Anyone who like like kind of was like area like a like local governor or whatever who kind of like fought against it. Uh, they he was removed. And yeah, that's basically what happened. And and like, it was over 1.5 uh, Armenians were killed during this. Yeah, this happens between 1914 and 1923. So beginning right around the time when World War One starts, and then continuing on after wow. the end of it. Okay, that's crazy. Yeah. So yeah. So and it's just and a thing that the Turkish government to this day denies. Yes. And they, only recently did the United States officially recognize that it was an actual genocide. Yes. It's it's kind of like it's it's a super big deal because the like the Turks will like they'll openly say like yes we there we had to move some people around and yeah. some of them died along the way. Well, but, it, it's very it reminds me very much of the the Trail of Tears with the Cherokee Indians where yeah. they're forcibly being removed from you know the Eastern United States into Indian territory and along the way several thousand people happened to die and they're like well we didn't we didn't intentionally mean to kill these people we're just forcibly removing them and Uh as a result they died on the way yes but it's like as clearly if you you go into it at all like there's clearly a policy of like they are trying to kill these people and it really doesn't matter to them whether or not if they survive or not and if anything it would be better off if they all died i think this is i think this is like super blunt like yeah. this was like even like like make sure these people die like i think yeah. it was like that um and like and then and what sucks is like there's like all these uh you know obviously families killed along the way uh and then like all these people that are like either turks or kurdish that they're going past some of them are you know sympathetic and save some people and a lot of them just kind of get in on the action and just like steal from them and like so it's like this is like the worst and like people are like wishing they had just killed themselves earlier like that's by the end of the thing it's like this horrible horrible thing um but yeah so it's like a yeah i was like oh world war one didn't have like a jewish like uh genocide kind of like that but it's like no it's got the armenians it's got its own um and I, I think that, I mean, it's a, um, I think it's interesting that it really almost does mark the end of the Ottoman Empire, because basically, right at the end of the Armenian Genocide, you basically have the completely, the complete dissolution of what had been the Ottoman Empire into modern day, the Turkish Republic. Yeah. Um, and I think it, it really is like the last death throes of an empire. I mean, basically just trying to maintain whatever, whatever kind of power they had, um, and in this case, through you know, ethnic uh, cleansing and removal. Um, and I think it's 
the last horrific event in the history of a brutal empire. So what happens to the Ottomans then? Okay, so, so World War One ends. Of course, uh, during the war, uh, you know the French and English, confident of their victory, create an agreement called the Sykes-Picot Agreement, where they they decide what they want in Middle East, which is cocky as fuck. And so basically, well, it reminds me. I mean, not quite, but like similar to the way that like the European powers divided up Africa during the Scramble of Africa. Exactly. It's like, it's like all right, how what is the modern Middle East or what is the Middle East post World War One going to look like? Yeah. Who gets what? And it's like, that's what you're working on? Like, while well, we got, you know, hundreds of thousands of people dying on the fronts yeah. or whatever. Like, I mean, this, you're is working a, on... this is a war of empires. Yeah. So, yeah. So this is a sad truth of it. But uh, France wants Syria and Lebanon. And then we, and then England wants... Uh, they, get, they get Egypt, Suez Canal. Egypt, Iraq, the Arabian Peninsula, mm-hmm. Palestine, mm-hmm. Uh, now uh, conflicted as Israel-Palestine. And uh, yeah, so they want all that. So then after the war, the Treaty of Severus is uh, signed. And it really, it really is like, takes everything away from the Turk. Like they're, they have like Ankara and like this small region around Ankara. Yeah. And uh, basically like Greece gets some of it. The, it's like, it's like one of those like things where it's like, you, no one's, no one's thinking. Everyone's just like, well, we won the war. Of course, of course you did. You won the war. You paid that price. You're like, we should get whatever the fuck we want, right? It's the spoils of war. It's the spoils of war. We just spent whatever, five years, millions of our best sons have died. We ought to get something from it. Yeah. And so no one's thinking about like, oh, well, what is like, what's actually going to work? What's like the people here need? Like, that's what, like, the the victims of this war are people in every country. It doesn't matter. I mean, they've, I mean, uh, something we, I've, so my job right now, we're going to Ellis Island. We talk a lot about the Spanish flu. Yeah. It's like the the worst pandemic of the 20th century occurs during World War One. Yeah. It's like Spanish flu kills like 100 million. It was like 5% of the world's population at the time because of the breakdown of infrastructure during World War One. And so like not only do you have this like great like war where millions of people are dying, you have this like disease that's killing millions, hundreds of millions of people worldwide. Yeah. Um, and then all of a sudden like at the end, they're like, well, let's... <laughs> Let's divide up the empire again. <laughs> this is what it's all about. And, yeah. and, and like, yeah, like there's like, like Lord George, uh, Lloyd George, and, yeah. and, and this crotchety old fuck nah, is, is just like, we got we got to take the... The, the British are just the worst. The, like, the, like <laughs> the more you read about... Uh, and like, I, I again, I mean, I'm someone, I'm, I'm almost entirely English in my descent, and like, I'm... I'm you know, I, I read a lot about British history, but the more you read about the British, it's like, oh, God, these people are just awful. <laughs> I mean, everyone's every, everyone's awful who sure. has power and feels like they deserve it. Uh, but, the, but the British were the best at being awful. <laughs> <laughs> we were the best at being <laughs> So, yeah. So, Until the good old USA came along. <laughs> yep. So Turkey gets this little area around Ankara. Uh, the Dardanelles and the um, Istanbul becomes this international zone. Mm-hmm. That's going to work. Uh, and then uh, Greece gets like the western side. Italians get a chunk in the yeah. bottom. The Balkans get divided up. It'd be up. Armenia gets a, a section, which, you know, they deserve <laughs> at this point. I think so. And then, yeah, and then so as in France and Britain separate the rest of that. Now, what happens is, um, of course, that doesn't work out because like the Turks are like, we can't, you can't do this to us. We yeah. were, we were an empire, you yeah. know, we were on your level. So this guy, Musta- Mustafa, Lion King, Lion King. <laughs> uh, Mustafa Kemal, 
who becomes the first Turkish president. He was a general that was did uh, did some good shit down in uh, Gallipoli mm-hmm. for the, so he still got some some sway, some clout, some clout. Yeah, he uh, raises an army, um, basically, and and drives these invaders off the land. And like you know, obviously, European powers are like we won the war. You can't do this. And the, <laughs> but then like no one's no one is willing to fight. Yeah. In Turkey or sure. the Ottoman Empire, except for the British. The British are willing. They keep a million people there. Imagine you're yeah, like the war's British. over and you're like, ah, oh, I really want to go. I home. mean, the British basically do the same thing to Ireland right after the war. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they like, just fought this devastating war where millions of people die. Let's just do the same thing to the Irish people. Yep. <laughs> but, Turk, but but I mean, well, it kind of reminds you, it's like they did lose the war, right? So like, what what are your consequences for losing sure. Turkey uh, and for committing a genocide, which yeah. is you know obviously never really totally. <laughs> We can ignore that. Yeah. Fighting on the losing side. But, so, but you, we, yeah, undeniably, you lost the war. Yeah. Right? Um, so what are your consequences for that? And and part of this thing is like, there. what, what you realize is there are no, there's consequences. The consequences are the people. Again, like the people that died and people that suffered. But like, you don't, you don't get anything. Any, you don't like, you don't get a, uh, you don't get your parade down yeah. someone else's streets where like you get to walk through someone's town there's and not be, the, be like, the hero. There's no like newly cr- proclaimed caesar exactly yeah they're, you're not they're not going to unite around you yeah you, there's you fought we fought for nothing yeah and that's what they're realizing in this moment and it's crazy oh fuck <laughs> it was and you lost millions of people for that it gets and we learned our lesson we never did it again yeah that's right they got into the war, war the war, world war one never happened again the war to end <laughs> all wars yeah so they do that and uh and then so that's and so mustafa uh mustafa kamal basically gets turkey uh to what it looks like today uh and that's gonna be which, eastern thrace yeah which still includes istanbul and when this is when istanbul is officially named that because yep. up until this time it's still been called the like the turkified version of constantinople sure um and but istanbul basically means in the city or like the city um and like it was like the colloquial term for constantinople and then it'll become the official official name of the capital of turkey and they still control like edirne and like the the western part of like constantinople and like a little bit in the european and then they still control most of like anatolia uh i've been to istanbul Oh yeah, do you have good food there? Ah, uh, so we went to this, uh, my mom's fr- friend. One of her really good friends is Turkish, and she like we we told them we were going to Turkey, and there she was like, "Oh, you have to go visit, like, go to my cousin's restaurant or something like that." Mm-hmm. So we went to this restaurant, and it was actually like really deep into this weird place in Turkey. There's like mm-hmm. a lot of like uh, mountainous like area, which were like a lot like like. Uh, it kind of felt like I don't want to you say slum without feeling like uh, maybe it's there's some kind of uh, derogatoriness with that, sure. but it was definitely a lower socioeconomic area. It was outside the city. It was outside the city, and then we get to this restaurant, and the restaurant is gorgeous. Mm-hmm. Like it's like this five star. Was it Salt Bay's restaurant? It was like it was like, but it's crazy. It's like what? Like we like just like like you go through this thing, mm-hmm. and then you're like at this super nice restaurant, and then we got there, and uh, they were like, "Do you have a reservation?" And we're like. No, uh, but we know this person who I, says she's your cousin, I, and they're like, "No." <laughs> they let us eat there. They did. Oh, we, nice. we got we got to eat there. It was great. That's good. Uh, but it was so funny. I, I will say I love Salt Bay videos. 
and what? he's tur- he's Turkish. Oh, is he Turkish? Yeah. So oh, like, okay. I, I didn't yeah. know why you bring that up. No, I brought that because he's specific. Yeah. There is like this weird thing. <laughs> Turkish in, love salt. I love. Salt. <laughs> they well, they love they love like extravagance in their um in their food. Yeah. And like you'll he's not the only one who does like weird videos. If you like if you Google or if you YouTube like Turkish wait um, butchers or is it tur- salt. Is it it's Bay B A E or is yeah, it Bay yeah. like That would be really cool if he called, he's like he's like I'm Ibrahim Bay. He's like, no, I'm Salt Bay. Salt Bay. B E Y. I'm the chief of this restaurant. That's right. so- um Man, I really wish he would do that. Like I don't know if he understands like the 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 Ameri- I mean the English and the yeah, yeah, yeah. like the Turkish versions. How puns of work? That would be really yeah, good. They, That's yeah. a good pun. <laughs> but no, like there is like this weird thing in Turkish like culinary like culture today where they love extravagance. They love like opulence yeah opulence like meat that's like covered in cheese like if you look up like turkish like like butchers or videos like you'll have like a lot of them where they're like like slathering meat with like cheese that's like a really big thing they like Uh, but salt bay he's like it's he's like one of these like probably the most like i mean internationally the most famous of these like turkish butchers and chefs for sure yeah um but i love his videos i i genuinely think they're very entertaining to watch oh, for and, sure. like, we- watching him do the little salt thing and he's like fucking he has like a saber and he's like cutting he's like lamb. curvy sword yeah i mean i love the, the the ottomans they love their curvy swords love a good curvy sword um but anyways all right so what is uh so what- what's our conclusion so uh ottoman empire gets broken up it becomes what turkey is today they're still fighting, uh, and the and the old Ottoman Empire uh, becomes Egypt, and this is you know World War Two also has an effect on this as sure. well. And then it, the Americans get involved, and yeah, gets infinitely more complicated. Oh, <laughs> the Palestine becoming a uh, uh, an uh, Jewish Israel. state yeah. that was uh, designed earlier, like that was before, like World War oh, okay. before World War One. People were already talking about giving that like there's there's a lot of uh, a Jewish yeah state. Zionists right. were trying to create that. Um, no, I mean def- I mean definitely the the break of the, the Ottoman Empire is really a significant event. And again, because we're, we're talking about such a large tract of land, the regions that they lose, I mean, there, there was one historian, I got to look up his name, I should have written it down earlier, but he was, I think his name is Michael Newberg, um, but he is a World War One historian, and he was talking about how he, he, he his thesis is that the, the modern conflict in the Middle East is a result of the partition of the Ottoman Empire, like basically the breakup of the Ottoman Empire and the subsequent colon, like colonial British, French, and American rule combined with like the local like ethnic revolts is like you have a series of succession wars, like it was a power vacuum, like the Ottomans had control of this region for... I mean, the better part of three, four centuries, and then all of a sudden, like, now, who is going to control this region? And only, and even more so, this region becomes important because of oil, um, which really complicates the situation even more so. Um, but even think of the Balkans. I mean, yeah. the, the the ethnic problems that happen, like, what, what? so the Balkan states become Yugoslavia. I don't, I don't know enough about that. <laughs> I don't, so, I, I know a little bit about it. So, like, uh-huh. after World War One, I, I mean, yeah, see, after World Serbia War II. Serbia did some questionable things. Well, so that happens, but... Well, but but think about it. I mean, like, why do they do questionable things? They're doing questionable things against the Muslims yeah. who are living in that region. Um, but no, I mean, definitely, like, the what happens to the Balkans? So, like, after World War II, I mean, the Yugoslavia is formed, which is part of the Soviet Republic. And then when the Soviet Union dissolves, U- Yugoslavia dissolves into these uh, nation states. And, like, Serbia is one. 
Bosnia is one, Albania is one, um, Croatia, like all these like states that had been part of the Ottoman Wars in like the 13, 14, 1500s, they're now forming their own nations in like the 20th century. Um, and the Serbs are the most dominant of them, and they're committing genocide against the Bosnians, the Bosniaks, who are Muslims, uh, and uh, the Kosovo, Kosovo, who again, another Muslim like nation within Yugoslavia, like the Serbs are committing genocide against them. And so I think a lot of that stems from the, the aftermath of what was once the Ottoman empire, like these nations that are competing against each other for control of this region, um, is now again, resulting in genocide. Um, and this, I mean, in the middle East, I mean, we've been, I mean, basically since the first Gulf war in the nineties, we've been in there almost like nonstop since then um, to control, um, the same regions that the Ottomans were trying to control uh, in the 14, 15, 16, 17, 1800s. So, like, so a lot of people, like, like what you're just kind of asserting is is what I hear from a lot of people is that the problems that we have today in the Middle East and, I guess, uh, the Balkans stem back to this point. Sure. But, I mean, I think you can easily say that it was from before that. or yeah. ju- Or just even the idea of, like, um, these group of people... You're right. There was a vacuum after the war, but I mean, yeah. there was there was groups of people that were being controlled. You're right. So they were controlled before that, and now they weren't controlled. No, no, no. A lot of these Christian groups that before um, were completely being dominated by the Muslims yeah. now have like their own like autonomy. Yes, and their own like I can now exert my power over sure the other minority ethnic. So groups. like what what I like what I wish had happened. Is <laughs> just what was your ideal? Is it like what, what I what, what I wish had happened? And uh, uh, I mean, there's obviously a lot of things that could have been could have happened better. But I mean, if I think if if the Ottomans had brought everyone in and created a sense of nationalism of Ottoman identity, there would have it would it would be ob- it would be more obvious of what should have have happened, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas now there's so many questions that people still don't understand. Sure. I mean there there are so many little I mean I there's mean so yeah. There, there yeah, there's so many I, 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 there's so many little things in there. Like you have and again, cuz we're talking about such a large tract of land, you have all these little ethnic groups many of whom have... Yeah, we're not even talking about oil at this point. We're not even talking about oil. We're just talking about, like, ethnic groups and control over resources. I mean, and we're talking about a region that has, like, is increasingly going to be afflicted by, like, climate climate change problems. And as, like, supposedly as the world becomes drier, this region that is very dry, like, as water resources um, become restricted, that's going to influence them. And then, I mean, oil, just, I mean, God, like, that's a whole other thing. Sure. Um, Which is crazy also, like, and this is, like, this is a discussion, like, I would, uh, just, like, the seeing, like, places that are oil-rich now, um, and seeing how they, and just like learning from this, the Ottoman history about how there's like the Bedouin tribes were these like, you know, nomad wanderers, mm-hmm. you know, people who would ride in, in the desert and like these very like austere conditions. And now there's like a fountain in front of a skyscraper, like yeah. we're in the middle of the desert. Well, um, I don't want to like give too much, uh, <laughs> too uh, much away. What's well, no, no, I, don't, I was going to say, I don't want to like tell people to listen to another podcast, but there's a really good podcast oh, I was listening to called the war nerd. You have to, pay, it you have to pay to listen to it. Uh, uh, so oh. it's, it's not a, uh, it's not a free podcast, but if you do want to um, pay $5, what's it called? What's the, 
It's called the Warner Warner Radio. Uh, it's it's really. How it's, do they charge you five dollars? It's on Patreon. So you go on Patreon and you oh, pay okay. five. You pay like ten dollar. It's like five dollars per episode, but you never had to pay for more than two episodes a month, even if they release more than two. Um, but you, it's basically like ten dollars a month to listen to the podcast. This is really good. Um, but they did a series on. Um, um or they did an episode on iran and like what in a war with like iran would look like today um and, and they were talking about like the the gulf cities and like how so much of these cities like so many of these cities exist purely because they have desalination plants um that's and, really like, interesting these like the like uh like all these cities along the arabian and persian peninsula the only reason they exist is because they can like take like salt water and turn it into water that they can drink um, and like, just think of like all these cities that if those desalination plants blew up, maybe because of Iranian missiles, like the entire Arabian Peninsula would become <laughs> uninhabitable. Sure. Um, and like, it's, or a, if you ran out of oil money or if you ran out of oil and money, you couldn't afford to do it anymore. Um, which, uh, I mean, I mean, it's entirely possible that we're going to start seeing like a decline in oil in the yeah. region, but I mean, these are conflicts that are going to continue to fester. Um, and as long as there's empires involved in the region which there are multiple empires involved yeah i mean the american empire is one but also i mean uh the iranians i mean they're very much involved in what's going on now and i think it's interesting that like the turks are now starting to you're starting to see i think a rat or almost like kind of like a neo-ottoman kind of movement happening in turkey oh, now sure. with like uh erdogan and i don't want to get declared too much. himself prisoner or president <laughs> maybe it's uh president for life yeah, I mean, I mean, you, which is always a great sign for uh, yeah. You <laughs> never, nothing, ever bad comes from that. But like, you could, I don't want to get too much in modern Turkish politics, but I think you, you can see that there's um, definitely a movement now to try to reclaim like previous Ottoman glory. Um, and there's a competition between like the Turks uh, and the Saudis and the uh, the Iranian state now for what essentially had been previously the Ottoman Empire um, and just throw in the fact that there are American and European powers involved in there. It's just like a huge mess that's continues to fester to this day and which we will not be able to solve on this podcast. <laughs> um, no, let's solve it. <laughs> well, if you take this region and you take all the people and you put them <laughs> in here. <laughs> uh, no, but um, is there anything else we have to say on this? I think we've covered pretty good amount of Ottoman history yeah um they made a lot of rugs they did make a lot of rugs we didn't talk a lot about art uh, but they did ottoman art is really i think i like ottoman art um, oh yeah i love it it's very beautiful i think moths are like absolutely gorgeous um yeah i i uh i i and i also i did appreciate the way that they they took the old byzantine and greek churches and then they just they literally just built on top of it you just put a dome on well, surrounded right. I mean, some minarets that's what uh, the pantheon in rome is is sure. a, a church it's a pagan church that yep. they just go oh that's nice yep um but no like building upon the old religion um and even like if you i mean from what i was reading like if you go to these places now like you still see a lot of the old byzantine things still there some of it has been covered up over the years and when especially in, there were periods in the 1700s where they became much more islamified and they tried to get rid of some of the older secular or non-muslim um um art within the um the old churches and stuff like that. But I mean, I, I mean some of the, like the great mosque at Bursa is still there. You know, the, the Hagia Sophia is still there. I mean, there's some really impressive architecture within Turkey and, um, 
I mean, the, the, the designs that they did, um, I mean, they're the rugs, I mean, there's, uh, some really, I mean, some really beautiful art and architecture that you can see some, which is available in New York city at the Metropolitan Museum of Art on fifth Avenue. I was just, I was a little disappointed. I, f- I feel like they could have had more. I mean, of or course not, they could have had more. They could have stolen more. They could have more. stolen more during World War One. Um, no, yeah. I mean, I wish there had been more specifically Ottoman art. I was like, I don't need to know about the, uh, what, are, what was the other stuff that was there? They had some cool stuff there, though. Oh, no, yeah, for sure. I'm just kidding. They had the um, the one room that was like the Turkish bathhouse or whatever. Oh, yeah. That was That's, cool. That was awesome. Um, they had some pretty cool rugs there. Um, and a lot of art. They had a lot of pottery that had ships on them. They liked ships. Like a ship? They liked ships and floral designs. Yep. A lot of flowers, a lot of palmettos. That was the thing. It was like repeating patterns that overlapped. That was a lot of it. <laughs> even the room, the room, the Ottoman room, like even the 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 ceiling was like taken That's from. A, how, do was, how do you take a ceiling? <laughs> I want that ceiling. I want that ceiling on my ceiling. Uh, it's gonna be really hard to grab that ceiling. Well, <laughs> we'll make it happen. We'll make it work. You have all day. All right. Anything else? I think that's it. Um, but anyways, thank you for listening to this podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, please check us out online. Um, where we will have places where you can visit us soon. <laughs> we're gonna <laughs> at we're, least the Facebook. We're gonna have a Facebook. We're gonna make a YouTube channel, or you're probably gonna have a Twitter page. Oh, uh, Twitter page. That's all you, Joe. I'm gonna make a Twitter page, um, which will be coming about soon. Um, until then, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, suggestions, corrections, please email us at excuse me history at gmail I have been Joe Barton. I have been Rob Rigo. Thank you for listening to Akumi History. history.